La 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 wait till I give my money back I had a dream I could buy my way to heaven when I woke I spent that on a necklace Hey everyone, Dave and Jeff at Dave and Jeff Podcast. Of course, I got to let you know, I changed your Rolling Stones music up a little bit because I was in the car with my son who said, yeah. this is the best opening you ever had. And then well, I said, cares? okay, I'll run. <laughs> well, he, he's he a is, listener. Well, when he is so, the show, he can do it. I so when like a listener requests Kanye West, that's the way we go. I feel like we're over-modulated. You you're over-modulated. Careful. Yeah, you're over-modulated. Uh, what a pleasure to have back with us. Jim Trotter. Jim, since the last time... Have we spoken to you since you've been... It's not really back. It's my first time in the garage. In the garage, Welcome it is. Welcome to the garage. So this is, this is uh, virgin territory for me. It, uh, it's great to have you here. And I was thinking today, driving down, uh, we are one year, really one year, removed from the first season without the NFL in San Diego. And I, I know how San Diego feels... I think we still feel a little lost, but I'm wondering, Jim, because of your connections with the league, how's the league view San Diego a year later? We really don't talk about it, to be honest. More than anything, every now and then I'll get a question um, from someone who'll say, how is San Diego without the NFL? And my first response is that it's typical. You have your hardcore fans who are still upset. You have another group of fans that were like, well, if it worked, then good. If it didn't, so be it. And you have another group of fans that were like, oh, I don't want them here anyway. So um, beyond that, the other thing I say is I'm not in town a lot, mm-hmm. you know, to really know how fans really feel about it. But, you know, the thing I always say, San Diego wasn't going to fall into the Pacific without the, the Chargers. I do believe they belong here. Um, I think there was a, a, a um, love affair between the fans and and the franchise, and it's just unfortunate that, that business got in the way. You know, I know there are a lot of hurt feelings. I mean, obviously, people who are diehard Charger fans are upset that sure. the team isn't here anymore, and over and over again, they people want to show pictures of what they think, you know, StubHub looks like with empty seats. I was there last year for every single home game, and you know what? It was full, and yeah, the majority of them were fans of other teams, but when it was all said and done, the money's still green for Dean, you know, and they're making money. They're making a profit. I think people here that frustrate me forget about what it was like the last few years in San Diego. It was the other team or it was partly empty. People weren't showing up because the product wasn't very good. But yet people are so bitter that they say, I'm never going to watch the NFL again. And then they want to use excuses as, you know, the guys are taking a knee or whatever it is. They're so against the NFL. The fact that you aren't in San Diego on Sundays most of the time. Do people ever talk about San Diego nationally, or is it just a, a forgotten city? No, they. Uh, it, 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 the only thing I hear from people nationally is that the Chargers belong in San Diego. Um, from people who have followed the league for a long time, um, people who enjoy being in San Diego, coming to games here, that's what I hear, that the Chargers belong in San Diego, um, that L.A. isn't home for them. L.A. is never going to fully embrace them. So I hear all of that, but as you were saying, at the end of the day, I've always said this, fans think with their hearts and owners think with their wallets, and it's a business at the end of the day. And my conversations with Dean going back years before, you know, they finally left was that from a revenue generating standpoint in Qualcomm, it simply could not sustain itself. And his thing was, or at least as he had said to me all those years, I don't need to be in the top quartile in revenue. I just need to be in the middle. 
you know, I need to be competitive with other clubs in terms of being able to hire coaches or have facilities that are going to bring in players, all those sorts of things. And to me, it's just sad that, that um, there was never that trust on either side. And ultimately, that's what this came down to. Even as much as business, it was just trust. There was no trust from the Chargers towards the city or the city towards the Chargers. And we can sit here all day and, and play the blame game, but that's what it ultimately came down to. Neither could trust in the other to do what he or she was going to say. Jim, or, the guy I'm most fascinated by tonight is Dean himself because Andrew Siciliano, your teammate at the NFL Network, flies in the other day, puts out on Twitter a picture of the stadium being built and says, looking good at L.A. Rams, no mention of the Chargers. When you look at in San Diego that you saw and that we saw, it always felt like the league was sympathetic to Dean's cause down here, that he was trying, that he was a likable guy. But then it feels like as an outsider that they view him as a guy who has crashed the L.A. party. He's hated down here. Where is Dean right now? Is Dean a guy on the island? Does he have the same ranking in the NFL that he might have had three years ago? Look, the, the thing with Dean among um, the NFL, the league office, or even the owners is that he's considered a good partner. And I think sometimes that works to his disadvantage. From this standpoint, they always they know that at the end of the day, whatever the issue is, Dean is always going to do what the league feels is best for the league. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons, too, that, you know, I think that, um, look, let's be honest, he got screwed in the L.A. deal initially mm -hmm. because when the committee, the L.A. committee voted in favor of the Chargers and the Raiders getting to move to L.A., and then the, the body, the large body, at large body, voted against it. Um, I'm not going to say it was unprecedented, but it rarely happens that the owners at large vote against the recommendations of a certain committee. And that took place there. And in part it took place because Jerry Jones and some of the others realized how important L.A. was to the NFL and said we have to get it right. And to get it right, we've got to go big. And to go big, you're going to have to be able to write a check at some point for cost overruns because there were going to be cost overruns and there have been. And you're going to have to be able to simply write a check and not go get a loan or, or seek money elsewhere. And Jerry Jones and these other owners felt that Dean and Mark Davis could not do that and that Stan Kroenke, who's one of the richest men in the world, could. And that's ultimately why that vote uh, went the way that it did. The other thing I will say to you is I believe the league hurt Dean by giving him the one-year option on L.A. after um, the Rams were voted into L.A. Because what that did is the league thought that was going to put pressure on San Diego to get a deal done. And what San Diego felt is that, no, the pressure is now on Dean to get a deal done or what? Or then he's got to go in as the number two tenant in L.A. in a stadium he doesn't own. And so at the end of the day, as, as, as we got closer to that deadline, Dean realized at that point he didn't really have a choice yeah. but to go to L.A. Because if he didn't, the Raiders then were going to take that option and go to L.A. This is before Vegas. And now Dean would have been in San Diego with no leverage on the city and two clubs up in L.A. And then the question for him would have been, where do I go from here? Mm -hmm and there really wasn't anywhere for him to go. You know, two-part question. One is it seems like from an outside NFL fan that the two teams that made the most sense were, of course, would be the Raiders and the Rams to bring them back to Los Angeles just because of the fan base. 
Two is hindsight being 2020. If Dean knew what was going to happen in Las Vegas, would Dean have chased Las Vegas over Los Angeles and said, you know what, I would have loved that scenario where all of a sudden Las Vegas has turned into a pretty good sports town. That could have been me. I, I don't know. Um, that's, that's the honest answer. I know he had looked into Vegas before, but there was always a feeling, as you know, that the league was never going to support a franchise in Vegas. And clearly the times have changed. Um, and it was always because of the gambling issue. But then I think what you saw with the NBA having its all-star game there and whatnot, you could sort of see the tide sort, sort of changing. And um, having to do it all over again, would he have gone in there? I, I don't know. If he could have gotten a deal like what Mark Davis got, maybe. You know, but it, and I, I know this sounds bad to a lot of fans in San Diego who don't like him and that sort of thing. But I do believe he really wanted to stay. But the but the issue was he wanted to stay on his terms, and that's not unlike every other owner in the NFL. So um, again, it's a business, and owners think with their wallets, and fans think with their hearts. Jim, one thing we haven't heard a lot of that I was told this week, and and was an eye opener to me, and I feel like I know a lot was how poorly he treated long-term employees on the way out the door. People that had been there for 15 and 20 years that said to me, look, I wasn't expecting a ticker ticker tape parade, but it was literally beat it. And that, to me, I found fascinating to hear that story. People that felt that they had been loyal to the organization, that had done things for the organization, that had, like I said, put in a lot of time and then were just kind of dismissed. I remember hearing one of the things that had been reported was that for every year you had been with the team, the idea was that you were going to get one month worth of severance from the Chargers on the way out. You know that organization inside and out as well as anybody. For the most part, were people treated fairly? People that determined they wanted to stay in San Diego? Or there, were there people that felt they would get a golden parachute that instead got a big anvil? No, I, look, I think there were some who felt that they hadn't been treated fairly. And, um, and to be quite frank with you, anyone who, who thought that this move was going to go smoothly mm-hmm. and everyone was going to feel good about the way that it, that it ended were kidding themselves. So I've heard some of the stories. I don't know all the particulars. And to be truthful with you, I've never gone back and investigated them with say Dean or the Chargers because I just don't feel like it's necessarily my place um, and I don't know what benefit it serves so uh, you know yes I've heard of some some former employees who felt that this wasn't handled right and their situations weren't handled right but um, and and I I have no reason to to say they're not telling the truth I've just not investigated and in part because you know truthfully I don't cover the Chargers. Yeah, I cover the NFL, so it's not something that I'm dealing with them, you know, every day. I have one last Charger question for you. Sorry, Dave. I got I one, one too after you. Uh-oh. I have one last Charger question for you. I I've lived here long enough, and this really sets people off when I say this, but I truly believe this. There's a part of me that feels like the league did Dean a favor by giving him the chance to go to L.A., and here's why. Even if that stadium had been built downtown, like the NFL had said to us on numerous occasions, they loved the idea because they could walk everywhere, the Super Bowl would be here, and all these different things. There would have been something that came along with that for the San Diegans, and that is an increase in your 
out-of-pocket expense. Would it cost you money for a PSL? Your ticket prices would have gone up. The, the parking and the tailgate experience would have changed. And I feel like this town would have <laughs> gone crazy. And, and when they looked at the money that it would have cost to keep this team in town, I, I, I again, I don't need to defend Dean, but there's a part of me that goes, Dean may have taken the only solution that he looked at, right? Because, Jim, what would the – you know the average Charger fan – would they have accepted with open arms the idea of a PSL, a raise in ticket, seats being moved? Or do you think they would have revolted and been incredibly upset and again pointed the finger at Dean? No, I think the people that support the team would have accepted it because that's the cost of doing business in the NFL. Everyone knows that now. Every stadium that's built, new stadium that's built, PSLs are one of the ways that are used to finance it. So you would have had those folks who support the club who would have, you know, groused about it but paid it. You would have had others who, who, you know, would have decided, you know what, I just can't afford it or I won't pay it. Would it have worked down there, Jim? Uh, I think it could have. If, if at the end of the day the stadium were built, I do believe the franchise would have been supported because um, I do believe that, that, again, there was a special relationship between mm -hmm. the fans here and that team through some thick and thin and a lot of thin. Um, I know when I covered it, we went – eight straight years without a playoff appearance, I believe it was, yeah. something along those lines. And I used to joke and say, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting off this beat until they have a winning season because <laughs> I didn't want it to feel like it was me, you know. Um, and then in 2004, they had a winning season. The next year I got off the beat. So, no, I, th I think that folks would have paid for it. Um, the, but the first time the team was bad, you'd have heard a lot of grousing, oh, yeah. like we always heard here. When the team was going good here, we never heard much about the ticket guarantee. The minute the team was bad, mm -hmm. we heard all about the, the – or not the ticket guarantee, but the seat guarantee. So it, it's just it, – it, you know, I know I keep saying this, but it, it's the cost of doing business with the NFL today. Yeah. And you can either accept it or not accept it. And if you don't accept it, you're not going to have a team. And if that sounds like you're being – you know, held at ransom. Well, it is what it is. You know, it's the cost of doing business. Two things for you with the Chargers before we move on to other NFL stuff. One is Mark Davis and Dean. Would the NFL prefer that those two guys would have sold their franchises and let somebody in with more money into the ownership group? Or is it great to have two guys like that that you can kind of push around the poker table? And the other part is, is there a race – in Los Angeles to see which team can win first. Meaning, my feeling is, if the Chargers were to go and win the Super Bowl this year, there would still be a ton of Ram fans. If the Rams were to go and win the Super Bowl this year and the Chargers don't make it, that all of a sudden it is the worst-case scenario for the Chargers that they are not only the Clippers, they are the, the forgotten team, which they are right now. They need to have a great season this year to get people on their bandwagon heading into that new stadium. Well, some would say they needed a great season – last year in their first year in LA to generate momentum so look you guys know LA LA is all about what have you done for me lately um, for the most part unless you're one of those iconic franchises that, that have been there for for my lifetime so um, look it, it's the, the Chargers when you rank the three teams that were vying for LA there's no question that the number one team that was desired by that market among the fans was the Raiders, without question. Number two was the Rams. Number three were the Chargers. And I still make this contention. I've said it to Dean. Um, I believe the ultimate play for him in a decade or so is Orange County. I still believe that. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But I just don't know how long 
he will be happy being the number two tenant in L.A. Ideally, Orange County would have been perfect for him in terms of drawing from both San Diego County and L.A. County, um, as well as Orange County. So we'll see. I think the Chargers are really interested to see because there's a lot of unknowns, even with this new stadium opening. Um, I think they're interested to see how that does impact the bottom line, how it impacts revenues and 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 the like. So would the league, have, to answer your original question, would the league have liked different owners? I, I don't know that to be true as it relates to the Chargers. They, the league likes Dean and the owners like Dean because they feel he's a good partner and he puts the league ahead of his own franchise's best interest many times. So, no, I don't, th- I don't think they necessarily wanted someone with more money. All right, enough about the team that we – acted like we were so invested in for the Ooh, last 20 years. I wasn't ready for all that. Yeah. Let me ask you about the team. I thought this was a fun podcast. <laughs> well, it is. It's because this is where, I, I mean, it's just, you could still feel it hanging over the city. It's going to be here for a while. That, yeah. That's what happened but, when a franchise leaves. But let me ask you about the real team that people Uh-oh, worry you about. You got this grin on your face, so I know something's <laughs> coming. What's coming? Uh, Dave and I have... One of the reasons we get along so well is that we've always loved the Raiders. Right. And we thought it was so great to act like we were so heartbroken after another Charger loss. Even when the Raiders <laughs> sucked, we didn't care. We were just, we enjoyed the whole thing. And so, Jim, I feel like this is so typical of being a Raider fan, and Charger fans can relate to this. I felt like two years ago when Reggie was sh- signing guys and they were front-loaded contracts, so if they didn't work out, like a Sean Smith, they'd be out, and it, it didn't hurt the franchise long term. But then they got frustrated, and Jack's out, and Gruden comes in, and you look at the draft, you go, well, that's interesting, that's interesting. And now you have Khalil Mack, and you don't know what's going to happen there. Jim, they got a lot of money invested in John Gruden. He is the guy. Is John Gruden ultimately going to be the guy that's going to be a good thing for the Raiders, or is it going to be something that people look back at and go, oh, boy. No, I think he's going to be good for him, but I, I think there's going to be some turbulent waters along the way. And I think we're seeing some of it now. I don't, I don't know that necessarily um, he and Reggie view the roster in the same way. And when you see them cut a second-round pick from a year yeah. ago already, <laughs> yeah. um, when you see John Gruden essentially saying, hey, we had Khalil Mack a year ago and we still stunk on defense, so – you know, um, we're not going to – and in essence, we're not going to pay a defensive guy that kind of money. Um, I can guarantee you Reggie wants to pay Khalil Mack. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to me about the Raiders, you know, they've not said publicly what the real issue is with Khalil, so you hear all these different things. You hear, you know, that Gruden, again, doesn't want to invest that kind of money on the defensive side of the ball for one player. And as he said to me, it's not just that, that – if you do a deal like that with a, with a player – it doesn't just impact that player or the team. It impacts the entire organization, mm-hmm. is what he said to me. So um, clearly he has given this some thought. The other thing you hear is that it's a funding issue because in the NFL, after year one, any monies that are guaranteed to a player or a coach have to be put in escrow. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, let's say after year one, Khalil Mack would be have $50 million in guarantees. Well, the Raiders have to put $50 million in escrow someplace to cover that in case the bottom ever fell out and all of a sudden the, the team was insolvent and they could pay the money that, that is owed. So same thing with coaches. They have to put that money in escrow. And so 
when you look at the fact that they just did this this deal with Derek Carr a year ago, and then you sign Gruden to this contract, and from what we hear, both those contracts are backloaded so that they can take advantage of being in Nevada where there are no state taxes, and now you're talking about doing sort of a record-setting deal potentially with Khalil Mack, that's a heck of a lot of money you got to wow. put in escrow for a club that doesn't have a significant revenue stream at this point. So wow. I don't know. I'm not saying that that is the issue. Mm -hmm. I did have someone in the organization say in the spring to me that funding was going to be an issue. But for whatever reason, when you have a defensive player who was all pro in the same season at two different positions, yeah, um, I kind of think that's a guy I want on my <laughs> yeah. team. That's know? insane to me. I just, I'm with you. I just can't understand it. Last year was a huge disappointing season for the Raiders. I mean, a lot of people thought coming off the season they had and, of course, Derek Carr with the, the broken leg all of a sudden, and, and they, they fall out in the playoffs quickly. No one was surprised by that because you didn't have your quarterback. Carr looked terrible last year. Look, looked completely as a different player in year three than he was in year two. Cleo Mack is the one guy on that, that roster you can say he shows up every single Sunday. As you said, all pro, two different positions in the same year was insane. Only guy I think I'd rather have defensively outside of him would be Aaron Donald. Right. The, the guy is so good. When they went through the draft and they passed on Minka Fitzpatrick, which the Dolphins are like, oh, my gosh, I think we just drafted a Hall of Famer. You're going, what the hell are the Raiders doing? And the guy they ended up taking as they trade down in the draft was a guy people said, wait a second, that guy was, was a second-round pick as an offensive lineman from UCLA. Nothing that has happened since John Gruden has been there seems like the right move for the Raiders. Yet if you're Las Vegas, you're thinking, wait a second, we want a championship contender. You're talking about trading – Khalil Mack, arguably the best defensive player in the league, to to another team before you even get here? Yeah. Um, well, Gruden wanted an offensive tackle, and, and they did need to address that position, as you see with Donald Penn this year with a foot injury. Um, they, they had to find someone, and so he liked Colton Miller, and that's who they went and got. Uh, and it was not a deep-drafted offensive tackle, so sometimes you're going to draft guys a little higher than maybe you should. Uh, but you can think back to Reggie's first year where they took D.J. Hayden with mm -hmm. the, the third pick in the draft, I believe, and people were scratching their heads knowing his, his injury history and whatnot, and that didn't pan out. So there have been moves that, that folks have, have scratched their heads about, and not just folks, but Gruden. Now, he did try and clear it up when he got to training camp. He said, boy, this roster's better than I thought it was when I first got here. Let's see what happens if they lose a few games early, what he says then. I, you know, all of us know John Gruden. He's not a patient guy. And even being up there, I was up there Friday night and just talking to some people in the organization. They're like, a lot of us are waiting to see what direction we're going because we really don't know at this point. And yeah, so it's it's <laughs> you're not uh, even week one yeah. into the deal. Well, Martavis you've got, Bryant. A, lot of, you've got yeah. a lot of new faces, and you've yeah. got a you've got a new guy running the show. As much as we say Reggie's a GM, John yeah. Gruden calls the shots now. Yeah, and it used to be that Reggie had final say yeah. on the roster and the draft and all of that. Not anymore. So, um. I'm curious to see if that relationship is going to work long term. I just don't know. Most most coaches who have the influence and power that John Gruden has normally want to bring their own guy. Yeah. It's it, it it's worth watching. Jim, looking at the league right now, it's funny being in San Diego because it does feel like there's a bit of a disconnect where I think we're a lot of us are are throwing that fishing line out, trying to figure out what exactly we're going to watch. Are we just going to watch the league? Are we going to watch the Rams? Are we going to are we going to cheer for somebody else? But right now, from an overall league standpoint, 
after the turmoil of last year with the anthem and Kaepernick and everything else, as we sit tonight, how's the state of the league? Is the state of the league strong? I mean, we saw the concussion issue last year, right? And I understand none of these right. are, have been necessarily resolved. But does, does the league feel like it, it's kind of picked itself up, it's dusted itself off, or, or are they two knockdowns in a three-knockdown fight? Well, I think, I think it depends on how you define state of the league. If you define state of the league as revenues, they're, they're as good as ever, better than ever. Um, and, and that was the irony in this whole situation where people were talking about last year the NFL was dying and this and mm-hmm. Go back and look at the ratings. Um, nearly 70 or 80% of the top live programming was NFL games. Yeah. Then go look at every deal that the league has signed since the end of last season on a national level. It has been for more money than the previous deal. Now, we have this saying that all politics are local, so there's no question mm-hmm. on the local level the anthem um, – the debate over the anthem uh, hurt some clubs from local sponsorship, that sort of thing. But on a national level, no. You just had an owner pay over two billion, a new owner pay over two billion dollars for a franchise. You know, smart people don't pay that kind of money for something that's dying. So, um, now having said that, the league's biggest issue, in my opinion, is that many of its wounds are self-inflicted, mm. and it creates issues or exacerbates issues where either there was not an issue or you could have squashed it really quickly. And, and, and the example that I give on that most recently is the anthem where, look, these demonstrations were dying out by the end of last season. I think you only had a half dozen or so players who were actually demonstrating. And now you go into the, to the meetings in May and you have close to a dozen owners who realize it's dying out and had even said to me, some of them, that we don't feel the need to do anything. Um, this has kind of run its course. And then you decide to change the policy and not only change it, but change it without ever consulting the players or the players association. And now you've got another fight on your hand and you've inflamed the situation all over again. And to me, again, that's one of those issues where um, you are your own worst enemy Mm. and you create these issues that that weren't there. And I'll never forget at the end of last season, I was doing a story about sort of the TikTok of of how the. the players coalition almost came apart right before they struck that deal with the league. And I was talking to Dr. Harry Edwards, the, the renowned sports um, social activist. And I said to him, we were talking about the anthem issue and whatnot. And he said, look, he said, the reality is all social movements have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. And he said, it doesn't matter what it is. He said, you can go back to 68 with us, with the raised fists. You can go to occupy wall street. You can go to whatever movement you want to talk about, and they all die out at some point. And he said, this anthem issue is going to die out. And sure enough, that's what it appeared to be doing until the league jumped back in those waters Mm. and started all over again. You know, you're in a locker room every single weekend. You know, I'm in the locker room for for eight weekends out of a year. It's frustrating to me when I try to explain to people, look, I'm in those locker rooms. I listen to the conversations. It has nothing to do protesting the flag or the military, but it's a hot, hot topic because it benefits one side. I've never once been in a locker room where someone has told me this is against the flag or against anthem. It's about human rights. And it's, it's very frustrating that the message isn't getting across that way to everybody. It just It's a hot-button issue, especially with our president. Well, there's no question he's politicized it, and, and part of that has to do with his feelings being hurt that he could never get into the NFL when he wanted to. Um, 
But the other thing is, I'll say this, we in the media are culpable too because we kept presenting it as an anthem protest and it was never an anthem protest. Even even recently, within the last week, I think CBS News referred to it as an anthem protest and then had to rewrite its headline because of the backlash from it. It has never been about protesting the anthem. It has been about using the anthem to shine a light on injustices, racial injustices and racial inequalities. And, you know, it, it's sad to me that, and, and I've said this to people in the league office, so I'm not speaking out of turn, that we tend to focus more on the vocal minority than we do the silent majority. And there are a lot of people who support these players in terms of what they're trying to do and the awareness that they're trying to raise. But they're not out there, you know, um, threatening the league, you know, that they're going to stop watching NFL games or, or even that they're coming into it. I'll say this to you. The, the thing that's been encouraging to me, when you talk to owners in waiting, meaning the kids of um, the current owners who one day will likely take over these franchises, and I've had some say to me, the thing that bothers them the most is that we tend to focus on at times who the league is losing in this discussion as opposed to who the league is bringing in. And if you're talking about looking to your next generation of fans, the next generation of fans are young, and many of them side with the players in terms of what they're doing here. So if you're playing the long game, the long game is to be on the right side of history and, and this next generation. If you want to play the short game, then you're going to be in this constant battle with the president, and he's got the bully pulpit. Jim, will Colin Kaepernick ever be back in the league? And second part of that... 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if the name Colin Kaepernick comes up, how will he be remembered? No, I don't think he'll ever be back in the league. Um, how will he be remembered? Depends mm -hmm. on who it is that you're asking. Um, if you're asking me, he'll be remembered as, as, as a person who um, brought attention to a very serious issue and lost his career because of it. And I don't think initially that a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, I know there were some teams that did not sign him, not because of his demonstrations, but because they didn't feel he fit what they did. Having said that, this thing has now become so big mm -hmm. and the grievance he filed against the league that now there are teams that might have had some interest that just say, we don't want to deal with it. You know, whereas in the past they might have. Should he have been more vocal? Is there anything? I mean, I, I said I would have loved to have heard him speak out more and, yeah. and explain his feelings. But his people um, say that that there was concern that his words would be misconstrued mm -hmm. or would be twisted. Mm -hmm. And so he is not. And I, look, I, I'm <laughs> I, I, have, I have expressed that over the last year plus to his people that it would be great to hear from him publicly, mm -hmm. not privately, but publicly, um, and to have him say where he stands. But now that it's in potential litigation, you're not mm -hmm. going to hear from him until that's solved. You know, it's amazing. There's so many bad backup quarterbacks in the NFL. I mean, the Chargers have, have terrible quarterbacks. Geno Smith, Cardell Jones, they're absolutely terrible. But almost every team in the NFL has yeah, a terrible Lynn, backup I quarterback. I with you. Yeah, well, I've watched these games. You know, they're, they're awful. And I've been there three not, hours before the game start, and I watch guys who can't hit, see, hit guys that aren't even you know being covered. You're not getting an argument yeah, from me. They're, they're absolutely <laughs> terrible. But all across the NFL, they're terrible. And it's not like just the Chargers I'm saying. I'm just throwing out those two guys. 
to know here's a guy that led a team to the Super Bowl that can't find a job. And I understand there's a ton of heat. I can't say if I was an owner, if I would be that guy that would would do it. You know, I understand what goes on. You know, you can see this Colin Kaepernick story. It's a 30 for 30 coming down the line. You know, ESPN's going to do a feature, a, a, a story on this guy that we're going to remember for a long time. And who knows how he ends up financially or, you know, as far as uh, depression or happiness or, or, or satisfied with the decision he decided to make. There are a lot of things about him that as a person that wishes a lot of people would use their voice that when you find out the guy didn't register to vote and didn't do the things that you expect him to do people ask me about professional athletes all the time i know all three of us get this question all the time i said a lot of these guys are better guys than you think nba guys are very smart you know nfl guys are very smart richard sherman's one of the smartest guys you're gonna ever gonna talk to yet people think as richard sherman is a punk because he's loud but try and get in a, in a debate with richard sherman he'll bury you look um Every step that Colin has taken, in my opinion, and again, everyone has their own opinions, has not been right. Um, I, I've said from the beginning that I wished he would have voted, and, and to say that it was because basically these were two candidates who weren't addressing the, the concerns of the community. Well, that may be true, but there were ballot measures that addressed the concerns of the community that you could have voted on. And so I, I've said from the beginning, I felt he should have voted. He should have voted, and, and look, a lot of people, um, gave their lives for the right to vote. And I don't, I, I don't take that lightly. So I do believe you have to be, you have to participate in the process. Um, there, even down in Louisiana now, I was investigating a story just the other day about how um, they passed uh, um, criminal justice reform, where now, um, uh, my phone's going off. It's all right. Yeah. Is it Brett Boone? <laughs> Brett Boone always calls during the show. <laughs> but now, but now um, convicted felons can vote if they're five years out, you know, after they're released. Previously, they couldn't. And that was significant because these people feel they understand the system as well as anyone having gone yeah. through it, you know. So they want to participate in it. And these are the type of things that these players are fighting for um, is to, to bring a voice to a community that, that has largely felt voiceless. So has Colin been perfect? No, but I always say this. Um, he's not a professional activist, although some may want to look at him in that way. None of these players are professional activists. They're football players, um, but they're football players who care about their communities. And therefore, um, are they going to be perfect in everything that they do? No, but none of us is yeah and so i always try and look at what what's in i don't want to say what's in your heart because you don't know necessarily what's truly in someone's heart but what's your objective you know and and are your intentions in the right place and if they are then you know sometimes you got to cut some slack jim i want to go back to what you said about your conversation with harry edwards about how every social movement has a shelf life and it feels like today we're in such a 24-hour news cycle. It's 7.30 at night. I had no idea that there had been a mass shooting at an eSports event today. I had no idea there had been another school shooting. It's unbelievable how we just accept these things as reality, where it used to be the driving story, and it would be for a couple of days at a time. It's a weird transition to make from the eSports and Kaepernick to this, but in the NFL it felt like at the end of last year, one of the huge stories that was going to develop, and to me it feels like it's gone completely away, is it felt like there was a dissolving of the relationship in New England between mm. Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, and Tom Brady. And I was fascinated to see how that was going to play out. And all of a sudden we get here, we're closing in, and they're all there, and 
nobody says anything in New England. Where is that story? Do you feel like that's something? Did they, I, I mean, is everybody best friends? I saw Brady's trainers back on the flight. No, I look, the reality is that there are going to be ups and downs in any relationship. Sure. You know, um, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a football team. And were there some, some turbulent waters there? Absolutely there was. But at the end of the day, they all know they have a good thing going. And no one is about to break that up. Um, Tom's not going anywhere because yeah. Robert Kraft's not going to let him go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, Bill Belichick's not at the point where he wants to go start over someplace else. So um, it just so happened that we're not accustomed to some of those details getting out yeah. from behind the, the steel curtain. And it got out. And, hey, if anyone if anyone ever thought that it was all peaches and cream among all of them, then they, they really don't know the NFL anyway. <laughs> Any organization you're in, there are going to be issues. Um, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, you yeah. know, he, he had expressed in his own way he was unhappy when Jordy mm-hmm. Nelson was let go. Um, but we, we, we are more privy to hear something like that out of, you know, another organization. We're just not accustomed to hearing it from – you know, the Patriots. You know, what's always interesting about the Patriots to me is that Tom Brady's a guy that always has deferred money so they'd have money to spend on other players, yet it doesn't seem like they spend money on the players that he thinks where it's going. Like, you know, we saw him do it with Wes Walker. All of a sudden, Wes Walker, we aren't giving you a contract. Danny Amendola, all of a sudden, you aren't getting a contract either. And, and they've let, you know, all pro linebackers like Jamie Collins walk right out the door, yet they keep winning. I mean, it keeps working the Patriots away. It's really amazing when you look at – the history of sports and especially the NFL where guys disappear so fast that it has been a machine that has gone on much longer than I think many of us even expected. Well, I I think number one, first and foremost, you have a great coach and a great quarterback, two all timers. So um, let's begin there. The second thing with the Patriots, excuse me, that I find um, what separates them from other clubs is Bill Belichick understands exactly what type of player he needs for whatever system or, or scheme he is running. And he does not ask players to do things that they're simply not good at, you know? And that's why you always hear that, do your job. He brings you in to fill a specific role. I remember one year at the Super Bowl, we were talking to him about his personnel choices. And he was saying, I could go out and I could sign some big name free agent, pro bowl or all pro, whatever. But for instance, if I'm playing zone coverage and this is a press coverage corner, while he may be a big name and an all pro doing that, if we put him in what we're doing, he's not going to be effective. And therefore, why do I want to do that? So it takes a lot of guts, you know, to know exactly what it is and to not get caught up into the name game and all those other things. And he's clearly the best, you know, um, one of the best to ever do it, if not the best to do it. So I respect that. And that's why I laugh when we get into free agency or even the draft and I hear people get caught up in the names. And if that name, if that player skill set doesn't fit what you are doing, mm-hmm. what's the point? Everyone's going to be unhappy or it's not, and it's not going to work. So I think that's the beauty of what Bill Belichick does. He understands what he wants and he identifies it, and he goes out and gets it, and he gets veterans in free agency who can uh, fill that specific role. 
whoever it may be. It may be a third down edge rusher. It may be a first down run, um, uh, a tackle, defensive tackle to stop the run, whatever it is. And he's going to ask you to do one thing. If you're a one-gap tackle, that's what he's going to ask you to do. He's not going to ask you to be a two-gapper. So that's the thing I love about Bill. And and it's unfortunate to me times that he has this relationship with the media where he wants to get up there and give you as little as possible. Because when he starts talking football and, and he gives us those windows every now and then, it's fascinating to listen to him. Jim, uh, the three of us kind of met during an era that was really, really fun in San Diego football. And that is when Bobby Bethard was here and and Billy Devaney was part of that team and Tank Younger and all those guys were here. And, and oh, no, I, I said Tank Younger. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Dick Daniels. And I'm mixing up my, my eras, but it doesn't matter. Dick Daniels. I know where you're going. Yeah. And it was unbelievable what you just said as far as Belichick with the media. Because if there was ever a polar opposite, it was it was those three guys that would sure. just talk to you and help you and, and teach you the game. Yep. Last time I saw you, Jim was great. We had a charity event August 1st, and Jim provided the Larry Fitzgerald jersey and a couple of signed books. Not only did that, but then spent a thousand bucks that night to the charities. I was supposed to be telling that. <laughs> so on behalf of the five charities, Jim, thank you. But as I went and picked up the Larry Fitzgerald jersey, you and I had a conversation. You were getting ready to go to Canton the next day, and you were going with Bobby Bethard, and you were going to do a story with Bobby, and you said, but you were going to write it. Eventually, I want to get into the art of writing because I'm fascinated by people who can really write, and you're one of those people. Thanks. But I haven't had the chance to talk to you since you went and saw Bobby, who I believe is fighting Alzheimer's right now. Mm-hmm. I know you were excited to see him and spend that time with him. What would you take away from that experience? Oh, man. Uh, it's probably one of the toughest stories I've ever had to write. Um, his family, I didn't know this, his family had never publicly said that he was battling the onset of Alzheimer's. Hmm. They had always just referred to it as he was having some some memory issues. And so when his wife, Christine, agreed to meet with me and be interviewed by me, I didn't take that lightly because she doesn't do a lot of interviews and um, and I knew it was a very personal story. But you know, my, my point to her was, I don't want to write a football story. I want to write a, a people story. Mm-hmm. I want to write a human story. And I want to be able to tell some of what's going on here. And so maybe if there's someone else out there who's going through it, they can relate and and feel that they're not alone. And so um, the story was, it was tough because I remember Bobby the way you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, my God, he was, um, in terms of health, there was nobody I knew who was more active, whether it was swimming, surfing, biking, running, whatever. Um, he just seemed, you know, indestructible. And in terms of just being a good guy, you know, whatever you needed, he was kind of there for. So now to see him where there are certain details he can't remember short term, his long term seems to be good. But then he will tell you the same story over and over. Or it's like he just he, he has just seen you for the first time when, you know, you just saw him 10 minutes ago. Um, that was tough. But one of the things I was interested in is just just what it meant for the family. And in talking to Christine, um, you could see it, it's 
when you have a loved one who is going through that Mm -hmm. and you become a full-time caretaker for that person wow um it's a lot it's a lot and um and my heart kind of broke when she told me they had gone on a trip to europe and they were going to go they went with some other couples they know and they were going to bike ride through amsterdam holland and belgium during the day and then take a you know a, a boat or whatever at night to move from place to place and all of a sudden you know bobby couldn't remember certain directions and he'd always been really good with his directions and so when they got back one of christine's closest friends said you know hey you might want to get bobby checked i think he's suffering from the onset of alzheimer's and christine got angry with her Mm. and was like how dare you you know and whatever whatever and as as time passed, she started to realize because th- this friend's mother was going through it. Mm-hmm. And as time passed, she started to realize, you know what? Maybe I do need to get him checked. And then she suggested to Bobby, realizing that something was going on, if this is happening, um, we need to enjoy, you know, family time as much as we can before he can't remember things. And so she s- suggested that they moved to Tennessee, which is where wow. many of the kids are. Now, mind you, they're living on the ocean, you yeah. know, up, up along the uh, San Diego coast. And he agreed. Mm. And so they moved back. And anyway, I could go into a lot of the story about some of the difficulties and, and how it's impacted and those sorts of things. But it was great to see Bobby around all of the old guys because, like I say, his long-term memory is good. Um, he remembered he lit up. Um, mm-hmm. It's like every day was a new day for him again. So that was good. Um, but it was definitely one of the harder stories I've had to write. You and I loved about it. Uh, and sorry, Dave. What I loved about it, Jim, is the speech was on tape. Mm-hmm. But but after they they unveiled the statue and he was there and he, he shook hands, I loved how many of the Hall of Famers came up to greet him. And I thought that was great because for me personally – when I started dealing with him, I came in as a producer. I was producing for Hank Bauer, and that was the spring of 95, right after the Super Bowl year. And, uh, you know, you talk about Christine, and it, it was such a fun time because you would just call the house and, hey, Jeff, you know, hey, what's <laughs> up? How are we doing? What's going on? And he was so great. And Christine, hey, you know, you could just hear and you go, they just were cool. They were just were cool, both of them. And I remember one time, a Raider game there in San Diego, ton of fights in the crowd, and he and I end up on the elevator together. It was before the time when the media couldn't ride with anybody from the front office. It's just like me and and Bobby, and and I think Dick was on there too. Man, there's some humdingers out there tonight, huh? You know, and. and and you just like like Dave and I have said, we have, we were so spoiled by the Bruce Bochies, the Kevin Towers, the Bobby Bethards, and and those guys, Bobby Ross, and the rest of these guys. Man, I feel for young guys coming up in the media right now because yeah. you had access to them. They yeah. would help you with background, and they were just man. He was just class. He well, was just think, think about this. So Christine tells me the story. She says, you know, we, we live on the ocean, and so our backyard is the ocean. So yeah. we, we don't get to see pe- We wouldn't get to see people very much. She goes, so what Bobby would do, Bobby would go put a chair in the driveway. <laughs> 
and he would wait for people to pass just so he could say hello to him and talk to him. That's well, how much he loved people. Yeah. You know, now how many general managers can you think of right now? We're going to go put a chair in Nobody. their front yard and wait for people to walk by or yeah. drive by so he could say hello to him, you know, but that's who he was. That's the way he was. The coolest. Um, he was, he was, Bobby was great, man. Was yeah. he able to enjoy the experience with CJ in San Francisco? None of us knows. Um, because I, I mean that's that's I, a hell of a, 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 a pride know. moment. CJ actually came back. He was in Canada. Yeah. Um, Kyle Shanahan made him come. Good. And said, you know, it's your grandfather. You, you don't have a say in this. You're going. That's awesome. And, cool. um, we were actually on the plane the next morning together when we left. Um, but yeah, he was there. The whole family was there, and it meant a lot to him. You know, it's like I was talking to Casey, his son, and Casey said, "Look." You know, we don't know how much of this he's he's really taking in or how much he's really going to remember or whatnot. And he said, you know, in his mind, he was already in the Hall of Fame. And he, wow. had, he had sort of conflated, I think, the fact that, you know, Washington had put him in its ring of fame. Mm. And then he had been back to the Hall several times for inductions of, of Joe Gibbs and Russ Graham and Daryl Green. And so in his mind, he had conflated it to where he was in. And then Casey said to me, you know, it, it, it's good just to know that he is officially in. But he goes, you know what? He was already a Hall of Fame dad, you know, uh, and that's all that really mattered. Yeah. You know, here's a question you might not know the answer to. But whenever I think of Bobby Beathard, I think of Daryl Green. Because mm -hmm. it was a time of being a general manager where you could find a guy like Daryl Green where you took a lot of pride in going, no one saw it coming but me because I, I did the extra work. Nowadays, obviously, you have so much tape and, and so much way to get guys. Everybody has their own YouTube channel, and all the games are on TV. But but finding a guy like Daryl Green was was really amazing. It was, it was old school GM stuff. Was there one guy that stood out in Bobby Beathard's career where he was he took most pride in finding that guy? Daryl was. Well, Daryl was yeah, the guy. When you hear when you talk to people close to Bobby and whatnot, he had a he had a special affinity for Daryl. So um, to find a quarterback from a or a cornerback from a small school at the end of the first round who plays not only that long but goes into the Hall of Fame. Um, that was special. I remember when he tracked down yeah. Tony Dorsett in his first game on Monday Night Football, <laughs> yeah, and you're right? like, holy shit, who's this guy? Yeah. yeah. yeah Where'd he no. come from? Yeah. No, he's that, that was the guy more than anyone for Bobby. All right, Jim, uh, I mentioned this. When I saw you leading into the event you were going, you said you were writing about Bobby. And mm -hmm. to me – it's a skill set that I'm fascinated by that I, I love good writing, man. I love good writing. I think you and I are fight fans. Man, some of the best writing you can read are people that follow combat sports and everything else. Novels I'm fascinated by. But, but you've written books. You wrote the junior book, which was you were the perfect guy to write it. You've been on the beat. You've written features, everything else. Tell me about... The vibe that Dave and I'll never get. Our our mutual friend Bill Center used to do this when he was getting ready to write. <laughs> and what I'm doing for Dave and for Jim, and I loved well, watching you have to it. Do it fast. Yeah, he'd start rubbing his hands really fast. And Bill had a big turquoise ring that would always be there. <laughs> and and I just I loved it because I was watching his mind go, and he was getting ready to bang it out. Take take us in, Jim, for the people that are when you're writing that story and you're there at the computer and you're getting ready to fire it out. What's that experience like for you? Uh, it depends on what story, what day, and what are the circumstances. Do you love it? Do you love writing? I have a love-hate relationship. Yeah. I, I love the end product many times, but I hate the process sometimes where, excuse me, I literally, it's not uncommon where I will spend 
an hour or two hours on a paragraph or two paragraphs. Yeah. That's no fun. Yeah. You know, and then you'll have other days where you'll write, you know, 1500 words in an hour. It just flows. So yeah. there's no rhyme or reason the, the you know, everybody has their own um, formula and their own style. And the one thing I've learned over the years is when I'm stuck, just write. You know, mm -hmm. just put something on on the screen and then you can go back and edit it. And when it finally hits you, at least there's something there rather than just sitting and waiting for the perfect what you feel is the perfect line. So it's funny because, like, like you say, I'm working on this other book right now and, and um, I was working on it before I came over. And so what I had done is I had written several chapters and then I just let them sit mm -hmm. for weeks at a time. And then I go back and try and look at them fresh and then... I find myself editing them saying, okay, this is way too wordy and you need to punch this up or whatever. Um, so everyone has their own formula, but I, you know, the, one of the things now when I joined NFL network, part of the reason was is that I wanted to do more writing. I know, Good. I know all the young people get caught up in TV and all that. And, um, I know I have to do TV, but I don't consider myself a TV person. So, um, I really wanted to get back to writing after leaving SI, mm -hmm. uh, I just felt like TV is so different mm -hmm. and there are so many other people involved with the process too, that in order to have the voice I want to have, mm -hmm. you know, really the best way to do it is, is with the written word. And the funny thing is, you know, with television, you get more exposure. So mm -hmm. people know you and it may open more doors, that sort of thing. But when you write it, more people see it than actually see it on television and it's always there and they can go find it and um and i find you get more of a response from a written word than i do from anything from television you know you've developed a relationship with one of my my favorites and i don't think i appreciated him as much until even the last few years and it's larry fitzgerald we mm -hmm. talked about the larry fitzgerald jersey that we had for the benefit but Larry Fitzgerald is fascinating to me for, for a number of different reasons. One is, I, you know, Jeff always hates it when I say this, but I always say if you would have kept Drew Brees and drafted Larry Fitzgerald, you would have had Larry oh. Fitzgerald, Gates, and LT. That's incredible when you think about all these Hall of Famers. But Fitzgerald never drops a ball, basically plays in a small market when you look at how much attention that the Cardinals get. And he's the, the pro's pro. I mean, and there's so many things, a uh, backstory with his mother and his father and, and education and everything that he stands for. I'm a huge fan. Getting to know Larry Fitzgerald the way you have, has he surprised you? Is he is he one of the guys you're saying, man, I'm, I'm glad I established this relationship? Yeah. Um, it's funny. When he asked me to do his book, um, I was a little surprised because Larry and I started developing our relationship back uh, during the 2008 season when they went to the Super Bowl. So I was at Sports Illustrated, and, and they had me go do a story. I don't know. It was early in the year, mid-year, something like that on – on Larry and Anquan and whether or not this was the best duo ever receiving tandem ever. And it was the first time I had met him. So, um, you know, I interviewed him for the story and Anquan and everybody and ended up writing the piece and whatnot. And so it was like, okay, on to the next one. Well, we get to the playoffs. And if you remember, uh, the week before the playoffs opened, they had gotten their asses handed to him by new England. Uh, something like 59 to nothing. I don't even remember, but, um, so we were kind of handing out playoff assignments at Sports Illustrated. And so I'm I'm sort of the newer guy, not the new guy, but the newer guy. And there were writers there who were better than me. And so I think they said, okay, Jim, we're going to stick you on the Cardinals because they're shit. And, and, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not our best writer and, and uh, whatever. So I'm like, 
I'm good with that. You know, it's close to home. And it just so happens they get on that run and they become sort of the story of the playoffs. And so I'm with them every week, you know. And Larry has the postseason of all postseasons for a receiver, breaking Jerry Rice's records and all of that. So we developed this relationship. So the season ends and they say, hey, we want to do a bigger feature on Larry. So I'm like, all right. So I called him and, and um, go out to Minneapolis to, to his home. He lives out in Eden Prairie. And um, and we, I started interviewing him for this piece. And I remember that for two reasons. One, when I was out there, it was when Michael Jackson had died. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget this because I, I called up Nandi Asamoah at that time, who was like the hugest Michael Jackson fan and who had tickets to go see him in London. Um. And I said, is this true? And here you have this all-pro cornerback from the Raiders who was outside the hospital at that point. He was such a Michael Jackson fan wow. that he's, he's waiting for news on whether or not he lived or he died. And then the other reason I remember it still vividly to this day is that I asked Larry, I said, hey, are you ever going to do a book? And he said, no. And, um, and I said, why? And he said, because, you know, my life is my life and people don't need to know about it. I'm like, oh, okay. So I respected that. Well, two three years ago whatever I get a call well let me backtrack I'm working on the junior book and so when we would talk and sometimes out of the blue he would call or text or something and say how's it going and then you know what have you learned and and um and I would tell him some of the things and he would say are you going to write that and some of it I say yes and some of it I said no and he was like why aren't you going to write it and I said well because some of it is children don't even know and I said I would hate for them to to read something in this book, you know, that's really sensitive that they didn't know about their dad and he's not here to have a chance to, um, you know, defend himself or to comment on it. And then you do, okay, okay. And that'd be kind of it and whatnot. And then uh, after I finished the book, whatever, a couple of years ago, I get a call from an agent saying, hey, Larry wants to do a book and he wants you to write it. And I said, well, wait a minute. He told me he's never doing a book. And so I called him and I said, well, what's going on here? And typical Larry, he has this sort of self-deprecating humor and whatnot. And he's like, uh, he's like, hey, try to, you know, if someone's going to pay for my kid's college, you know, I'm not going to turn that down. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, like you're really hurting for cash, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and what no one knows is that all the proceeds he gets from the book are going to his foundation, you know. So it's not like he's not he's not even pocketing anything off of this. So. And what I realized at that point is those questions he had been asking me when I was going through the junior book were kind of a prelude to what he was going to do. And and since he's so private, he wanted to make sure that he could do this, in my own mind at least, with someone that he trusted. Yeah. And so as we've gone through this process, it's, um, you know, I've had to push him at times. And what I have found is that... Uh, particularly for him it's a much more personal book than what I anticipated um, now I still have to wait and see if he signs off on using all of this material because it's his book but some of the things that we've we've touched on already um, I think people are going to find find interesting and, and you know it pulls back the layers a little bit about why he is the way he is and, and why he is who he is so it's been it's been it's been tough um, cause you know, he's a world traveler and it's tough to pin him down sometimes. And he's such a private guy. It can be tough to pull stuff out, but, um, 
but at the end of the day, I think it's going to be rewarding. I love that, uh, and, and for an obvious reason, I was going to kick out of guys that go back to Minneapolis. Prince went back he to loves Minneapolis. It. No, he. Yeah. Matter of fact, it's funny you say that because this was just part of the chapter I was working on, and and he says that it's his his there's the phrase best me mm-hmm. and he says i'm my best me when i'm in minneapolis that's cool and he says you know it's so peaceful and you know it's big but it's not so big to where people you know will bother me like, yeah he's telling me it's like i can go into target and, and no one will stop me i'm like get out of here <laughs> you know yeah and he's like no he's like i can go in the store and you know people might say hi but they're not gonna they're not gonna stop me or whatever whatever that's pretty and, cool. Um, so he loves it. And he said, in fact, he goes, I would move back full time if it weren't for the winners now. Yeah. His blood's gotten thin and he <laughs> yeah. wants to play golf. <laughs> yeah. And you can't play golf in Minneapolis in December. Uh, Jim, if you could be on one beat for a day, a week, a month, what beat would you be on? Any beat worldwide. Politics, music, right. movies, sports, and sport away from NFL. What would you take? I almost find the White House beat to be really fascinating particularly Especially in this now, day and right? age yeah i mean jesus there's there's never a, a dull moment which is not a good thing but for a journalist can be a good thing yeah <clears throat> so you know i went to school in dc and i've always uh loved the fact that it has a certain energy and a certain vibe and if you have not been there or lived there you you don't really understand what i'm saying but when you are in the nation's capital, particularly when these things are going on, man, it, it is uh, it's such a vibrant place. I, I love it. I don't know for for both you guys. I, I'm, I'm wondering, are we moving forward? I, I love I just read The New Yorker. I don't know that I'd ever bought an issue of The New Yorker in right. my life, but there was an article by Ronan Farrow about what Les Moonves was doing at CBS to all these actresses. And you, and when you see a Les Moonves or a Harvey Weinstein or Spacey, you kind of feel like, hey, we're moving, we're, the train's moving forward. And then I, I see what people write about John McCain and I see what's going on and just the insanity in DC. And I go, man, are we moving forward or are we moving three steps back right now? It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, a tough decision to figure out which way we're going. But Jim, is, is sit there, Dave, I'll ask you too. You guys see it and you go like, okay, guys that have been scumbags and doing terrible things to people that have gotten away f- with it for 30 years are finally being called out, yet we have other situations that are going on on a, I, I never want to say a bigger scale because it feels like I'm downplaying the, the wine scenes of the world, and we just turn a blind eye to it. Are we moving forward or are we moving backwards? Oh, that's a hard question. I, I, when I see so much of what's going on today, the tribalism in our politics, yeah. I, I say we're moving backwards because when you start, when you now start questioning facts, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we start coming up with these things called alternative facts or whatever, the facts. Are Nobody the wants facts. to lie anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, we're we're getting closer. I, I've seen more news news agencies start to use it now in relationship to the president. Um, but it used to be that if something were a fact, it was accepted as a fact, and it's no longer that way. And, and so, you know, I'm fearful, um, truthfully. And when I see all the rollbacks, we can talk about, you know, the role of government and all those sorts of things. But, you know, when people, <laughs> when people want to tell you there's no such thing as climate change, 
you know, or um, when we don't want to acknowledge the the impact that we as human beings have on this planet in terms of tearing it down Mm -hmm. and these sorts of things. And you only think about today and you don't think about the next generation and what are you leaving behind for your kids or their kids' kids. Um, It's scary, man. And and I'll be honest, you know, you used to watch some of these movies back in the day, you know, whether it's Mad Max or whatever. And and I, I hope I'm just half joking here, but you're like, oh, I could never see it get to that. This is just Hollywood and whatnot. And Sometimes I wonder if we're we're moving in those directions, man. You know where um, some lunatic's going to get his hand on the button, and and all of a sudden, it's a, it's a totally different world. I hundred percent believe we're going backwards. It's scary as yeah. shit to me. I hate it. I, you know, I remember I took a class at San Diego State once. I took a Holocaust class, and uh, I remember the last day the professor asked us, "Could you guys see this happening again?" I was the only one in the class that raised my hand and said yes. And everyone yeah. else said no. And the professor said, he's the only one I agree with. He agreed with me. He goes, yeah, this could happen again. Not saying, I'm, I'm not calling the president of the United States Hitler. I'm just saying there are a lot of things that go on with the media and propaganda and stuff where you talk about history, history repeating itself that's scary. When the campaign was make America great again, I'm sitting there thinking, what? What, what, what do you mean great again? I mean separate bathrooms, separate drinking fountains again? When was yeah. it better than it is right now? We, we do care about our climate. As, as you, you said, life is short. And you're gonna sit there and say we don't care about clean air, we don't care about clean water, we don't, we're gonna, we're gonna ignore climate change. All that stuff is frustrating to the point where I, I was just asking a, a young kid today. I was out today and I said there has to be something that is important to you that you're saying. No matter the situation, I'm against this. I'm against shooting little kids. I'm yeah. against school shootings. Yet it doesn't seem like to, it seems like an obvious answer to everyone else. People aren't uh, uh, or seem to be okay with it in honor of their political party or the NRA or money or whatever else, but that, that should never be okay. It drives me crazy every time I see a shooting. And uh, hey, you have a it right should. to own a gun. I understand yeah. all that, but we all have access to nine one one. Things have changed dramatically since the Second Amendment. Not to get too political, but the 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 school shootings are my number one hot button. Where I want to pull my hair out of my head. I can't believe that this still happens over and over again. Yet it seems like it happens every month. Yet I've seen. My sons, who are blonde and blue, are 25% Persian. So I look at the blatant hatred that there is towards people of, you know, my sons have that blood running through them. Their mom's 50%. Greatest people. I'm getting a divorce. She, she and I are better friends today, and we've always been great friends. What an amazing relationship. I look at the hatred... Dave, Dave's Jewish. I, Dave, I don't know if you knew that, but you are. <laughs> and uh, I look at the outright hatred that people don't even hide anymore. Jim, we've yeah. talked about this. One of my favorite things and, and w- w- one of the many reasons I miss our friend C.S. Key so much is because, yes, we had Fight Club. But for me, I was I I just was curious and I would ask Jim and I would ask C.S., we would have so much fun when we would go and hang out, but it's a world that I've never lived in where it's been blatant racism to their face, to to their spouse's face, to family member's face, and you would just hear it and you go, man, these guys are brothers to me. Dave's a brother to me. My two sons, my ex-wife. It's it, What it feels like to me is hatred has become acceptable. Yeah. And I just am scared to death of that. I think we have accepted the fact that we hate Everybody that doesn't look like us, and it scares me, man, because 
I feel like I have friends from every walk of life that have made me a better person and to see them directly impacting you go, man, I don't have anything I can do other than, you know, be here and speak about it. But that's the thing that scares me to death There's how many people in my immediate circle are directly impacted and how many people also that I know in probably not my direct circle, but the next layer out who are part of it where you go, wait a minute, what happened to you? I grew up with you. You were a friend of mine and you support this. The Molly Tibbetts story, which was an awful story, absolutely awful story. And she's murdered by an illegal immigrant. And it's what we see all the time. The story gets away from her and becomes about him. And then you see guys that have, you know, the kid today that shot up the Madden thing. He wasn't illegal. Nope. He wasn't of color. He's a white kid like me. You haven't seen a tweet from the president about that. No, you have not. I didn't think so. Uh, You have not. And that to me is where I go, man, you are seeing, I I feel like in, we were talking about this off the air where you, where you want to comment on social media and you can't, but there are so many times where I feel like, is it tough to type with the hood on what happened to you? And I'm so scared about the world that my 10-year-old sons are growing yep. up in where there, this used to be looked at and, uh, shit, man, maybe everybody was just lying. I feel like Jim, maybe, and Dave, people lied for eight years. They felt like during the Obama that they had to be somebody they didn't want to be where I liked it. Man, I like Michelle Obama. I like Barack Obama. You got a problem with that? Too bad. Don't follow me. Don't listen to the podcast. I looked at it as a husband and a father, and I said, that's who I want to be. I like it, and they're cool. It had nothing to do with color. It had nothing to do with politics. It looked at, and I said, that's a role model and a guy I like. And it's just like, man, those eight years are up, and fuck you to everybody. Here comes the real me. And God, I feel like we've gone backwards a lot of ways. The pro- Part of the problem is, is that, you know, there is a belief that if someone gets something, mm-hmm. then it's being taken from someone else. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. You know, I, I tweeted this the other day. This is before Senator McCain passed, and, mm-hmm. and it came across my, my timeline. Um, that clip from the presidential election where the woman in the red the dress, town hall, right, and she called Obama an Arab, and he stopped her and said, mm-hmm. no, that's not true. And I, and I said it's sad I even have to ask this question, but might we never see something like this again? Yeah, right. And I don't know that we will. Yeah. You know, it, again, it's just become so tribal in our politics now where, you know, um, it, it, it's party over, over country. And what McCain did there and what he did after he lost the election and the way he talked about Obama and what it meant for this country at that moment to me was huge. And, and look, I understand he had some things that went on earlier in his life adult life and we can go back and and talk about that if we needed to about him initially opposing you know mlk day in 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 arizona and whatnot but he also acknowledged later he was wrong and people learn and they grow so i and you know look i'm not going to go into all this um on here because we could be here all night it's just sad it's um i don't think we we look at people as as individuals and and judge them based on you know the content of their character at at, at this time 
and I and I don't want to generalize either and say no. we. I think there are just folks out there who don't, and that's the unfortunate part. You know, last week we had uh, Chris Merrill in here, who we were talking about McCain just last Sunday, yeah. and Chris Merrill was doing political talk in uh, Phoenix, and basically he lost his job. He wasn't Trump enough, you know. And he's a guy I think, like Jeff and myself, we we look at issues blindly and we we pick a side. We get as much information, and we pick a side. We don't say we're all left or we're all right. We both voted, you know, both sides. But we all agreed we, we were McCain fans. And I asked Merrill about him because he has known him and interviewed him a bunch of times. The part you're talking about where he stopped the lady that was trashing Obama and set the record straight. He probably lost election right there at that moment. But at the same time, it showed the character of the man. I thought it was his best moment in his life. Actually, I watched it just last night and showed my wife the, the moment because she hadn't seen it before. And I said, this was this was the moment, I think, that defines the man. I was really disappointed at the end of his life, of the 81 years of service and his family being about service, that people were saying, when are you going to die already? And people that ripped the hell out of him yesterday on social media, it was so disrespectful and disgusting. I was like, well, what kind of American are you looking to have in this country? When are you going to take shots at this guy, yeah. even as he passes away? But it was interesting. Just, it was just last Sunday. We didn't know he was as ill as he was yeah. when we had this interview with Chris Merrill. But... Last night was a was a, a fascinating time, as as Jeff says, is a is a, t- a tough to type with the hood on. There are more and more people that were in my inner circle that I realized I didn't know. And I, you and I had a conversation, Jeff, off the air last Sunday when I, after Chris left, saying, "Are there people that you know that have shocked you and surprised you that you're ready to end friendships with because or, or not hang out with them because of their family because they shocked you on how they believe?" I'll say this to you: the the thing that's disappointing to me is is it seems like we can no longer disagree and yeah. have a conversation about something if we disagree. And, and I, was having, I was having this discussion with someone recently, and I said, you know, the thing about sport is the locker room is what America should be. And when I look at it, you have people of all different races, of all different economic means, um, different religions, everything else. And regardless of all of that, they can all come together to pull for one common good. And to me, that's what the country should be about. And unfortunately, it's not. And, and I just wish that as much as we have people who, you know, want to bag on sports or whatever and these athletes and everything else, the one thing I know about a locker room is that it is a special place in terms of bringing out the best in everyone and learning to live with one another even dis- or, or despite all of our differences. Yeah, it's funny. My sons, who are 10 have two brothers and a sister that they have grown very close to. Um, and, and this family, it's, it's happened since I've been out of the house, but the family that they're very close to, they don't look like my sons. But my wife, ex-wife, has done something where she said, look, I have the opportunity. It's not, not you know, okay, come over, we're doing hot dogs, we're play PlayStation, watch a movie, go swimming, do everything else. And I said to her the other day, I just said, you know, I appreciate what you're doing because I think it's a really nice thing that you're doing for the family. But I said, the more important thing that I appreciate what you're doing is installing in them a mindset that these are family and they're friends and they're lifetime buddies. I said, I appreciate what you're doing for the other kids who are also looking and saying these guys don't look like me, but they're my buddies and we play PlayStation and they trash talk and they go searching for ghosts and they go, we have a random chicken in the neighborhood in La Mesa. I have no idea why. But there is nothing. Because it's La Mesa. It is La Mesa. But there is nothing funnier to me 
and nothing that makes me happier than seeing four guys, two guys that look alike and two other guys that look alike, but in their heart, they are four guys on a team and they are going to track down that chicken. And I tell them, none of you are going to catch that chicken. <laughs> We're catching that chicken. Like Rocky okay, too. Rocky, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and look, that, that's not... That, it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. She was the one who did it. But I love what, and I've told her, again, she's 50% yeah. Persian. She deals with it. But I go, I just appreciate what you're doing for him. What an amazing thing you're doing for, for four guys. Uh, one guy's 12, two guys are 10, the other one's eight, and they couldn't care less. They sit there and watch movies. And they joke about the one kid helps with the dishes. He's a kiss ass. The other yeah. three make fun of him. Uh, the kid who helps with the dishes shockingly does not live in my house. <laughs> uh, he learned what we learned, Jim, that nobody loads the dishwasher right, and he just gave up. But it cracks up because, Jim, it's like you said. They don't, they don't see color. They just see brothers. Yeah. And, they, uh, and like next weekend, my son told me today, he goes, hey, look, um, we're not going to see you on Sunday because mom's taken – me and Jack and Dante and Tajan, and we're all going swimming up at Lorraine's house. And I was like, out you go. Yeah. Go. But see, I, I would argue with you and say that they do see color, and I think we should see color. But beyond that, you should see someone's character. Yeah. So, so like when people say we should have a colorblind society, and I say, no, we shouldn't. You know, yeah. we should be able to recognize the differences in all of us, and yet at the same time, be able to judge someone based on their character. So um, I don't want you to see, I don't want you to see me as gray, you know, or it's, yeah. it's a black and white thing or gray. You don't see color. No, see color, but see the person. Yeah. You know, and that's what I, I think we miss. Um, but anyway, I thought this was supposed to be a fun podcast. All right. We're serious, man. <laughs> I, Jim, because you want to play F. Mary Kill? You yeah. Guys are, you guys are heavy, man. No, you know why? Because it's I'm it's one of those guys that uh, you make us better. And that's the nice thing is that I feel like you go, who are the people that make you better and hang around with them no matter what they do? What do you miss the most about CS? No, you know, I'll tell you this. My, my wife said, I, I told her I was coming over here to do the podcast, and she's like, you got to stop spreading yourself so thin. And I said, no. I said, you know, you always want to get back to people who you think are good people and who have, you know, supported you. I said, so Yeah. it's not about spreading myself too thin. I, I don't mind doing these type things. And, and um so I, I think you run into so many people in this business and, and, and just out and about who aren't real or who, you know, just aren't good people. And so when you get a chance to be around people who are good people, you want to you wanna support and do what you can. So I appreciate it. One, um, of the things, uh, one of the things I've learned in death, we had my, uh, my wife's best friend. I've been very open to her family and uh, and to my wife that I took this person for granted. Took her for granted. She watched my kids every day. I never, never did a good enough job of telling this woman how much she meant to our family. Mm. And I did terrible, terrible things in my mind where we would be on a family vacation. She had a connection to my kids. And we would just, we, she would talk to the kids, but we always felt put out by it. And it was so... I always have been disappointed in myself because you go, it took two minutes out of the day. It's terrible. And I just, I live with the regret that I never it would have taken five minutes to just tell her how much she meant to me, to my kids and to my family, but you're living in your own bubble. And Jimmy, it was funny as we were doing that event on August the 1st, Sean and Katie Temple said to me, 
because I had said to them, uh, remind me to mention CS. And so they said CS. And, and hanging out with here with you guys is great. I could do this all day. But if you put a you know 200 people out there, I don't like it, uh, right? And But I did, and I said, look, I do want to mention a guy. And I talked about CS and how much he would have been in his element that night running the live auction and just how great he would have been. And I find myself that I miss him a lot. A year ago tonight, I don't know, you're not a Facebook guy, Mm-mm. but a year ago tonight, you will get a kick out of this, was the night we were all at uh, Cali Comfort. A year ago tonight oh, was wow. was Mayweather McGregor. Wow. And there is a great picture that I will send to you of all of us with Derek Dawson and John Browner and uh, <laughs> the girl who had a few drinks at Cali oh, that night, yeah, 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 and yeah, me yeah. and Jim, <laughs> yeah. Sean Walchev. With her, her fiancé, he works at the restaurant, and yes. so it was funny. I would see him, like, keeping an eye on her, <laughs> like she he was knew fine. she's had a little too much, making sure she didn't go too far, so but that was kind of funny. she was at that table because CS had a date that night with, with uh, a girl, and I crack a up girl. when I look at this picture because I go, he's missing, but it's so funny that he's missing because he was missing in the CS kind of way, chasing tail as he would. Uh, what do you miss the most about him? And do you find yourself like me going, shit, man, I really do miss him just hanging out? Yeah, no, he, um, you know, CS was always the life of the party, and it was fun to see him him do his thing. Yeah, you right. Know? Um it just yeah it it's man it's still sort of surreal you know that he's not here and um it just reminds you you know cuz and this had nothing to do with with his death but you know he was going through some things at the end and and um you know life can be tough and uh you know every now and then we would have these conversations and and you know you just kind of like hang in there and yeah, you try and help each other and those sorts of things. But um, CS was just always fun. He was fun because he was who he was, and he didn't try and hide that from anybody. You yeah. know, and you have all these people who put up facades and and like me, I'm not. He's comfortable in any setting. With me, I'm not. If I'm not around people, I don't know. You were very comfortable killing him, which made those (laughs) nights hysterical. No, you had to. You had to give it to him a little bit. But like, if I'm around folks, I don't know. I tend to sort of recoil because I just don't know what what your what your motives are. You know, a lot of times in CS, it didn't matter. Everyone was his friend. Yeah, Um, they all loved him. It was just funny. Like you'd be at the tilted kilt, and you know, and. It's like you, he might be dating one of them, and then here comes another one, and it's like, how are you doing this, and how are they not killing each other? Yeah. You yeah. know, that sort of thing. And he just, he would give you I'm that doing look. My thing. Yeah, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine, you know? But, um, no, man, it, it's it's strange that uh, you lose Junior and then you lose him. And, and yeah. uh, you know, we say this all the time as we get older, you know, too many people we know are, are leaving us. And and you do have to try and enjoy it. And, you know, I think you'll appreciate this because um, it was it was before I knew I was going to see Bobby for that story. Yeah. And I also knew Marty Schottenheimer was also dealing oh, with, yeah. with Alzheimer's and whatnot. And, and I remember um, <clears throat> I called his wife and, you know, I just said, uh, 
you know, I said, hey, Pat, how you doing? How's Marty doing? And, and she told me, you know, it's it's tough now. Um, he's doing okay, but, they, you know, they've got, like, a full-time caregiver with them because you can't leave them alone and this, that, and the other. And, and um, But I was happy that when I first heard about his condition, which was some years ago, I remember I called him. And I just said, hey, I, and and it might have been after Junior's death. I can't remember. But I said, you know, you just get those moments where you have people who along the way sort of meant a lot to you or helped you in some sort of way. And you just want to recognize them. Yeah. And I remember I called Marty and I said, hey, I just want to say, you know, thanks for, you know, all that you did for me. And I said, I know we had our, our battles at times <laughs> yeah. and whatnot, but um, I always found you to be stand up with me and, and – um, I tried to do the same with you and whatnot. So you have those moments where you reach out to people like that. And uh, I remember after Junior's death, one of the first guys I was on the phone with Rodney for a story uh, yeah. I was working on. And I just told him, you know, I said, I, you know, I've never told you how much you meant to me in terms of my career. And he and Junior and a few others being so instrumental in me learning about the culture of the NFL and the culture of a locker room and really for this young guy who who thought he knew it all and really didn't know anything um they were instrumental in my development which which you know um again when you play the long game means i am where i am today in part because of what they did oh for man me. he uh, so you tell them um but anyway you just that's why i say when you get around good people or you run into good people you know you want to do whatever you can to help them um because you don't run into a lot of i those. had the chance on this podcast to thank CS, yeah, because cool. uh, we had we had left um, thirteen sixty. Man, there was so much going on in that twenty sixteen. Death of friends and like depression kicking in, not even knowing it's kicking in, and the job goes. And I was just and there was a fight night, and he texted me and he said, "Are we going to see you at Cali?" And I said, "No, nah, I'm not going to that one." And he called me, <laughs> and he called me. And he said, you know, he, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, insult what he did by, by doing a CS impression. But what he said to Why me you was, always do. No, I know, yeah, but he was like, he was different though, Jim. He was different when, when he turned it off and he was just your right. guy. Right. And he said, look, man, this is how you go and you're coming. And he said, either you're coming or I'm coming to get you. Hmm. But he's like, this is what we do. You know how he'd say it. This is what we do. And you're going. And he said, I know it's whatever he said. It was just great. And it, you, me, Walchef, we were there. We were laughing. And he kind of in that moment go, okay, everything's going to be cool. And circle around to February of that, the following February. And he's sitting up in my old place. And I got to tell him to his face, which is so rare, when he said, listen, and for you as well. I yeah. said, I appreciate what you guys did for me that night. Because it told me, you know, brothers stick together and here we go. And he just kind of shrugged it off. And then I'll never forget. Um, January 1st, Dave's father passes away. On that same day, I find out I'm getting a divorce. It was an unbelievable start to 2018. On the 13th of January, not even two weeks later, my sons and I are up in Oceanside. And we get hit from behind and my car is totaled. And now I have to call my soon-to-be ex-wife and say, my car just got totaled and I'm stuck up in Oceanside with our sons. Can you come get us? And so she comes up and it's just so awkward and everything's going on and you're just like, your head's spinning. 
And I get home. There was a fight on that night. I just wanted to watch the fight. And Jim, you either called me or you sent me a text. I can't remember what. But either one, you said, I know what it was. You sent me a text. And it said, have you talked to CS today? And my heart sank because I was like, something's wrong. And then we called and we chatted and it had been on social media. I still have people who ask, let us all three be incredibly clear. CS did not commit suicide. Correct. He did not commit suicide. I had people ask me at Del Mar last week, and it look, we do work with AFSP. We will have a team part of the walk on the 27th. We're proud of the work we do with AFSP. However, CS is not part of the people that fall under that AFSP umbrella. CS had a very unique health condition that took his life and took him away from us at a young age. He did not hurt himself. It was not a self-inflicted injury, and I want that to be clear as a guy who meant an incredibly lot to the three guys sitting here. We would tell you if he did, but he did not. He died of natural causes, and and we miss him every day. You know, I think about my last uh, encounter with him over and over again. Listen to this one. Because it was so different than any encounter I've ever had with him. I mean, I had a chance to work with him at, at Channel 6, and he was hilarious, and he was the whole persona of CS. But it was it was December thirty first. It was the last Charger Raider game. Sean got him tickets to, to as his guest to say we're going to go see your Raiders play. Right, I remember that. And he called me three times. Called in the car. He called me when he got to the stadium, and he's like, you know, it's yes. Are you going to come down and see me? He sounded different. He didn't sound sad or anything else. He wasn't the big CS on air guy though. And from where I sit, I couldn't have had a further walk. And I understand stuff up. It's small, but I'm corner of the end zone the other way. He's the end zone the other way. I was like, I got to do stuff broadcasting-wise. I'm looking at my watch going, can I get there and get back in 20 minutes? And I was like, I'm not going down there. Fuck that. I'll see him next time. You know what I mean? As everyone always puts off. And he calls me again. He goes, you got to come see me. You know, what are you doing? And I guarantee so, you he didn't say it that clean. No, he did not. A couple <laughs> cuss words in there. And I said, screw it. I'm going to go down and see him. And I go down to see him. And it was different, Jim. It was it was different. And Sean was there. He, he, he could we watched the whole thing. But when he hugged me, it wasn't just like the hug when you walked in, good to see you, we're friends. He held on to me. And we talked for a little bit, and then I started talking to Sean. As soon as as soon as I started talking to Sean, he sat down in his chair, and he and Sean sits front row. He's sitting there looking at the Raiders like, I'm going to take all this in because I don't know where I'm going to see my Raiders again. This is important to me. And and it was just warm-ups. You know, kickers kicking, kicking the ball right at us. And he uh, is just sitting there looking at it like this is the greatest view I've ever had in my life. And then we spoke a little bit more, and then he held on to me again. And that was it. It was it was different than any, than any experience I've had with him. Then I game ends, whatever, go home. And I remember I, I call my mother. My dad's in the car, doesn't say a word through speakerphone. And my dad passes away the next day. CS passes away shortly after. Mm-hmm. And I think back to that day all the time going – December 31st, 2017 feels like the last normal day I'll ever have. Hmm. You know, I know, I know life gets better, but for me, it was such a shakeup for that time of going, that was our last conversation. But as Jeff says, it wasn't suicide, but there's something in my mind that thinks CS knows I got to take everything in because I don't know how long I have. It was, and maybe I'm way off, but he was different. He was just different that day. And Sean, as a witness, will probably tell you the same thing. He was different that day. Well, I'll tell you my favorite thing was CS. When we would drive to Cali Comfort, he and I would do the same thing every night and I would drive to Cali comfort and I would just, I knew he would be there and he and I would have this game every time. So we would get there and I would just look at him 
I'll just give him this look, right? <laughs> and he'd be like, I just kind of stare at him, kind of glare at him. And he'd be like, what? And it would always, I would always accuse him of liking a very shitty 80s R&B band <laughs> better than an established 80s R&B band. And it was, it was so fun. So I would say to him every time, I'd say, you know what? You got some goddamn nerve. <laughs> say what? And I go, I watch you on TV. I saw you the other night say that Stevie B's more talented than Smokey Robinson. And we would do this game every night. How do you put Color Me Bad above the Temptations? How do you put <laughs> Timmy T? I'd give him, Jim, I would just rack my brain for every awful. And I don't, you know, when are you going to show Freddie Jackson the respect? <laughs> when are you going to show Johnny Gill the respect that he deserves? You know Johnny Gill made New Edition. Don't tell me it was Bobby Brown. And he would just, oh, but I would always just, I would try to think, like driving it, okay, who's the most random guy I could give him tonight? And accuse him of being a diehard fan of. I know you play. I go, I see these girls that walk you through here. I tell them, I know you got Timmy T. I know you got. I don't have Timmy T. But it just, he was so funny because, uh, and and I would just remind him how he fucked me out of the Howie Long jersey uh, on a consistent basis. But, uh, all right, what people may not understand Tell me about your days covering the San Diego Gulls, Jim, because we chatted about this the other day yeah. at Del Mar. Yeah, no, it's, people don't want to believe that that was the most fun I've ever had in the business. Really? Absolutely, and I think part of it was <clears throat> you're talking about an inner-city California boy who had never been to a hockey game before. So I didn't grow up with the game, didn't really know the game. So who puts you on that beat? Who's oh, it? here's how it went down. So I'm I'm fairly new to the Union Tribune at the, at the time. The Union I'd started in '89. Wow. And um, so that summer, everyone was on vacation. I'm a high school writer, a local zone writer, and everyone's pretty much on vacation. And they get this um, news release that hey, there's going to be a press conference to announce that there's going to be an international hockey league mm-hmm. team. So nobody's around, and sports editor doesn't care. So he's like, Jim. Go down and cover this. <laughs> so I go down and I cover it. And then after that, it was like, it's minor league hockey. We got the Chargers. We got the Padres. We got this. We got that. It's like, um, so anytime there's a home game, okay, Jim, you go cover it. So over the course of time, it it, it became my quote-unquote beat. Yeah. So now fast forward, um, I think it was two I think it was two years in. My, mm-hmm. I don't think it was three. I think it was two. But anyway – they, they're an independent, they're unaffiliated, so all of a sudden Don Waddell, the GM, brings in Rick Dudley, the former NHL coach, to, to be the coach, and he starts stacking the roster with all of these former NHL guys who are no longer, um, who no longer have the interest of NHL clubs because they're older and whatnot, and then he had a couple of guys he got on loan from clubs, young guys who were really good, and all of a sudden they reel off they start out like 25012 something like that I, I was something crazy and i'm like holy shit what have i got myself into <laughs> and the thing that was good cuz uh the veterans there were still even though nhl guys are the best to me in terms of interviewing and whatnot but they're still when you when you're older and you're a little more jaded you're a little more leery of the media but i had always told them as well as rick look i i know what i don't know and there's a hell of a lot here i don't know and in essence, can you all teach me the game? And I think they respected that 
I wasn't trying to tell them how to play hockey. I was trying to learn from them. And so it ended up being a great experience for me. Um, the team was great. I had a chance to learn something new. And actually it turned into a great story because they became sort of the Darth Vader of the mm -hmm. IHL. And every other club hated them, particularly all the affiliated clubs. And at the end of the year, they started to lose guys because they were so good. They start to lose guys to the NHL. So the goalie gets called up. A defenseman gets called up. Another might have been a, a center gets called up, whatever. And now they're not the same club, yet they make it to the finals. And they're playing the Fort Wayne Comets and a goalie named Pokey Reddick. Yeah. Which was great for me because I'm looking at a black goalie in a sport where you see very few blacks. And Pokey was – he may have – I'm trying to think of another great goalie, whether it's Grant Fjord or whoever. He was on one of those roles where nothing was getting by him, and they ended up sweeping the goals for nothing. And you talk about going from one end of the spectrum where you don't lose for like 26, 27 games to open the season, and then you don't win for the last four. Um, it was it was an unbelievable journey. But, yeah, it was the most fun I ever That's had. That's cool. Because there weren't any agendas, or you didn't feel like, people thought you had an agenda and now you got to go and you know prove yourself you know that you're not trying to either embarrass someone or whatever whatever you're truly just trying to learn and do your job i was trying to tell my uh tell my son today we we're just talking about some of the guys you might have worked with here in san diego we we're talking about you going from espn to uh, nfl network of course uh, sports illustrated but guys that you worked with oh we had incredible incredible staff huh yeah. i mean as far as guys that have moved on that are nationally known now that you, you might have forgotten that they came from san diego no i mean go back to when when i first got here so um our high school zone riders when i got here were me um Pedro Gomez, who's now with ESPN, <laughs> um, Tom Krasovic, and Tom Shanahan. Subsequently, we hired Buster Olney, now with ESPN. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Rick Buecher was here. He was covering mm -hmm. the soccers. He later went on to ESPN. Um, Mark Rainey? Radler was here. Graney was like a news assistant. He wasn't even like a full-time guy. And then he later got hired as a as a uh, high school writer. So you, you just look at some of the names. Clark Judge? Clark was here. As, he was working at the Tribune. Okay. So, um, but once we merged. But, you know, when you talk about Ed Graney, Mark Ziegler, um, Buster Olney, uh, me. Um, Pedro. Rick Buecher, Pedro. Um, Hall of Famers in McGee and Collier. Oh, they, they were incredible. Um Kreibler, uh, who am I missing here? Uh, you know, obviously we had Nick at the Tribune. Um, Cushman. Just, yeah, yeah, I mean, Bill Center. I mean, you yeah. just go down the list, all these guys that were, it was just a fabulous group to work with. And and everybody was different. I, th yeah. I mean, that that's what was so cool. The writing styles were so different. I mean, you know, you have um, Bill Center, who's straight ahead, you mm -hmm. know, and, man, nobody could crank out copy like Bill. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't care. And cover a multitude, could cover any sport Everything. across the board. I mean, when you talk about um, sailing, uh, motorsports, baseball, football, bat boxing. it didn't matter. Great boxing. boxing writer. Bill could cover it all. He was tremendous. And he was – it was funny because, uh, you know, and, and he'll, he'll appreciate this, but early on it's like, man – 
I don't know if I like this dude. <laughs> right. You know? We felt the same way. We yeah. figured he hated us. <laughs> exactly. We figured he hated us. But that but what you learn later is yeah. if he's not giving you shit, it means he doesn't like you. If yeah. he's giving you shit, it means he does. And so, you know, me being a new guy, I had to kind of learn that. I'm like, who is this dude? You know, and mm-hmm. um but just so talented. And then and then Jerry McGee was Jerry McGee. You yeah. Know? He had his own style Loved about him. how he wrote and covered things and interviewed people. You know, Ziegler was always so talented, always, you know, one of the more talented on the on the staff. Um, and then you 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 just go down the list and you see, you know, Buster always had that passion for baseball. Did, did any of these guys surprise you? And the reason I, I say that is I was watching Buster tonight and mm-hmm. Jeff, Jeff has his issue with Buster because he thinks he's tough on the pods. But I remember when Buster was here, I gave Buster a ride once to a Padre Dodger game up at Dodger Stadium. He didn't say a word. The whole time didn't say uh-huh. didn't say, <laughs> didn't say what well, we really didn't know each other. He just he needed a ride. Didn't didn't talk at all. It's amazing he's on TV. Buck Showalter asked him today because they have the players jerseys, and Buck's like, "What's your nickname?" He goes, "It's a fucking Buster." What are you talking? About? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but I'm like that. He surprises me. Did any of these guys surprise you? I would have never. I'm like you. I never would have envisioned Buster on TV. Yeah. Um, but he was a tremendous writer, and and he he loved the game. I mean, that's all he that's all he he wanted, you know, was to write about baseball, talk baseball, all of that. Um, you know, truthfully, is that the longer I get into this, the the I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay in it from a standpoint of working for a network or an outlet, just because as I get older, there are certain stories I want to tell, and I'm not sure that that. You know, these outlets are always that interested in these stories that I do want to tell because it is a business and clicks are important and all of that. Um, but I just I'm not into all the BS any you know, that, that I don't want to say that I was into it before, but I understood as a young guy coming up, I had to do it, had to cover it, that sort of thing. And I feel like I pay my dues now and I don't want to deal with that stuff. I, I want to be able to tell the stories I want to tell. And if I can't do that, then it's time for me to get out of the game or find another way to to do it that way so that's why now I feel like I'm in that I'm at that point in my career where it's um you know you don't want to say you smell the roses yeah but Mm. I I know I know I'm I'm definitely closer to the end than the beginning and one way or another over the next so many years I'm going to keep moving closer to stories I want to tell and if that means that I have to get out and just do books or whatever, then so be it. But um, the business has changed so much, and I can't say for the better, and and that bothers me. But um, one man's not going to change it, you know? I love the guys you mentioned because I feel like radio guys and writers, we're kinda, we kind of all get along. Because different grind, but we appreciate it. And I, I just, those group that you just talked about, Jim, I, I've had such an appreciation for them. Ed Graney, to me, is one of the, I've sat with Graney at so many times where your ribs hurt from laughing mm-hmm. because he refers to everybody as kid. Everybody's a kid. And his stories of living with Buster Olney and Tom Krasvick and Coronado are... You can't even tell those. You can't, there. but you they're can. just... And especially when I worked with Kraz on the soccer's beat, that's how I met those guys. But I do want to ask you about one guy. And you Pedro, Pedro, true story here, just real quick before you ask it. Like when I got to town, I didn't know anyone, obviously. And where did you come from? I had been up in I had been up in Tacoma, Washington, for um, a little less than two years, 
and I'd never been to San Diego before, even though I'm a Northern California boy. And uh, big Giants fan. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, so, so you know, when you get here, the newspaper they like give you, we'll put you up for a week in the hotel or something like Great. that, and then you're done. So I didn't have anywhere to stay. Didn't know where I was going to stay. Any of that and all that. And Pedro's like, "Come sleep on my couch." So like, wow. yeah. So like, we all were kind of that way. I slept on Pedro's couch for I don't even remember how long until I finally got my own place. Um, but that's kind of how it was back then. It was a really cool time, and um, all the guys were cool and would would you know help each other with whatever. When I moved, Tom Krasovic came and uh, to this day I remember he yeah. came and helped me move. That's why whenever yeah. he calls and needs something. Wow. I'm, I try and help him. Um, he was the only one that came that day. I wouldn't I help Jeff move. No, I, I'll tell <laughs> you, know? you my uh, my Tom Krasvig story, and then I, I want to ask you about Nick. But Tom oh, Krasvig, Godfather. Uh, Kras was on the soccer's beat, and they allowed me as an intern to go back to Baltimore. Well, Kras goes, "Hey, just crash with me, and we can stay there." So we're in Baltimore at this hotel. And we're up on like the 20th floor. And anybody knows Kraz, he's the nicest, most mellow guy going. But I had come in on the team flight. Kraz came in as writers did on the late flight. So it's the next morning. And I'm up ready to go. Tom's laid out. And here comes housekeeping. And Tom, get out of here. <laughs> now, I've worked with Kraz every day. And I'm dying. So I'm like, Jesus, right? Kraz goes crazy. Now the lady comes back again, like 20 minutes later, knocks again, housekeeping, and Kraz again. Get out of here. So I'm just dying. I've never seen angry Kraz. And I remind him of this all the time. And now the third time the lady comes and she knocks and Tom doesn't say anything. So now she thinks it's okay. And she comes in and there's a small little wall that she's walking and Kraz hears her come in and in one motion, like he's throwing a boomerang, reaches behind him with this huge pillow oh, no. and fires the pillow. I said, get out of here. <laughs> and the, the lady gets all upset. I mean, I'm did like, he think about putting out a do not disturb sign? I could have done it. I could have done it either time. I was wide awake. It's your fault. Yeah, it's absolutely you, my fault. fault. I know it's my fault. You don't see me talking you out of it. It was great. He checked it. He looked like Crocodile Dundee. Get out of here. And I tell Tom all the time, you're going to get sued <laughs> by the hotel union. One guy who has been on your bandwagon, it feels to me, from day one, has been Nick Canepa. Oh, Nick's my guy. I, mm-hmm. I love Nick. Um, Nick today, he's so active on Twitter, which cracks me and Dave up. I would have really never does. guessed it. No, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. But I love the guy. Tell me your favorite Nick story. Oh, God. I... That's like asking me to <laughs> choose cake or ice cream. Um, yeah. Nick and I, you know, the thing about Nick that was always great, you know, we call him Godfather, but he had that certain status that when you went on the road, yeah, he was of that stature that you had to do everything for him. It didn't matter what it was, whether it was driving, he was never going to drive. Yeah, you I knew that. had to drive. Yep. He was never going to make reservations <laughs> to eat. You had to make <laughs> reservations. On. No, everything. You had to... You had to literally, um, you were his, you were his, uh, his, his right personal hand assistant, you know, yeah. you did everything. The thing about Nick that was funny when, when he and I traveled, we always had this running joke. I always got, um, I always got pulled 
uh, aside by uh, TSA in Philadelphia, or, you know, at the airport, and it didn't matter. We could both go through. Mm-hmm. And again, this is before um, 9/11, so it didn't matter what we did i was always getting pulled over for something you know at the airport or wherever and so when people always say oh you're just making that stuff up (laughs) nick's like no i'm there i saw it and he did and we would just kind of laugh about it after a while because you know if you keep getting pissed off it can get kind of yeah you know it could lead to something bad but um but no the best story i have with nick when we traveled together we (laughs) we're in oakland and we're at a TGIF. And if you know Nick, <laughs> he likes to have his stoli, you know, oh, on the yeah. rocks. And so we're sitting at the table at TGIF. Um, I can't remember if it was after a game or the night before, but whatever. And he orders his drink. And the woman says to him, can I see your ID? Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, she did. And and we looked at each other like, you got to be shitting me. You know, I think at that time he was 50-something, whatever. And, yeah. uh and you know and then i think she caught on that that we were like giving her shit and she was kind of a little embarrassed but she was just doing her job you sure know, you, you have to ask but that 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 kind of blew us away when he got carded you know for a stolen <laughs> at, so. at a at a tgif in oakland so i remember a trip that i was on in philadelphia oh there's another trip but i can't tell you about that one. <laughs> well we'll just turn the mic off and then i'll hear it yeah but in philadelphia you saved me and Jeff LaValle from Channel 10 because me and LaValle get to the airport late. And on that trip, it was you, Nick, and McGee. And I remember saying, you cut us. What year was this? Uh, right after 9-11. It was. In 01? Uh, December 2001. Yeah. Yeah, right after 9-11 because I spent three days in New York City and then came over to Philly at the old vet. I remember being at Philly because that was the game that um, the Chargers lost and Flutie the next day basically blame Ladanian and I had to call out Flutie. Um, oh, is that when, is that when that whole it, thing? No, nah, I'll give the people this story. They, they don't know the story, but, um, so Doug won't like this story, but oh, well, what do I, I care? don't know that he even knows Dave and I exist. I could, I could, it doesn't matter. Um, so in, in, um, I'm, I'm gonna give you some insight in the, in the beat writing and, and how it kind of works. For some of us. So anyway, that year, 2001, if you remember, that was the year John Butler came in. They had LaDainian as a rookie. Doug Flutie was there in his first year. All that kind of stuff. There was all this speculation about whether or not going into the season that whether Butler was going to keep Mike Riley as coach. Mm-hmm. Whatever, or North, whatever. right? Was it North there? No, no. It was it was Mike Riley at the time. No, but I'm saying, was it North the OC at that point? North was the OC, correct. And... um. So middle of the season, the season starts to go on the shitter, you know, as it as it usually did. And I get a tip that San Diego State's AD is coming over to the Chargers to ask for permission to interview Mike Riley for, for their job. And confirm it that it's true that he's coming over. And um, so I go to Mike after practice and said, Mike, you know, look, this is what I'm hearing it's going down. They're coming to ask permission to talk to you. Said, um, is this a job that you're interested in? And Mike, you know, says, hey, you know, I can't really talk about that, whatever, on the record, you know, whatever. I'm like, okay, well, look, I just, I have to write this story. So is this something that you are interested in? And he said, well, Jim, you know, just 
excuse me, basically between us, he's like, look, if I, I want to stay with the Chargers, but if I get fired, I don't want to have to move my family. So, yeah, yeah if I'm getting fired, I, I would have interest in it. So I said, okay, look, let's do this. I said, I'm going to write this story. I'm going to say um, that, you know, you're interested in the Chargers job. You want to keep your job. But if you were to lose your job, you would have interest in the in the San Diego State job. He's like, yeah, that's accurate. So I was like, all right. So I write the story. Next morning, I wake up and and it's like blowing up that, you know, Riley doesn't know where this came from. He <laughs> oh. has no interest in leaving the Chargers, um, the, that I made this up, whatever, whatever. I'm like, OK. And I go to Mike. I'm like, Mike, what the heck? We we talked about this. You knew exactly what I was writing. And he's like, yeah, no, it wasn't you so much. It was Nick's column that got my wife and the organization all worked up. And so basically they were trying to do damage control. Mm-hmm. But fine, I'm going to take the hit. So the other B writers go to Flutie, and Flutie's like, you know, the irresponsible media and this and the oh, other. Shit. And he's like, you know, just going off. And I'm like, you know what? I got to put on my big, big boy pants and just take it. So I do. I'm not going to throw Mike under the bus or anything like that. So I take it all week. We get up to, we get out to um, Philadelphia. And no, they were playing Seattle that week. And, um, they lose. So after the game, the media come in, hey, Doug, how much of a problem was this? Was it a distraction, all of this? Doug goes off again on the media. You know, yeah, you know, um, yada, yada, yada. He's just, he's killing me, which I'm like, okay, again, I got to take it. Yeah. So on Monday, I realized I've had enough. So I see Doug and I said, do we need to talk? No, I got nothing to say. I said, you sure? He said, yeah, I got nothing to say. I said, okay, cool. So we get to uh, – he had, he had had a bad game in Seattle. So on that Wednesday, we go to Mike Riley, who's going to be your starting quarterback, because there was all this talk about Drew Brees should be mm-hmm. playing. And Mike Riley said, um, Doug's going to start. And I look at him. I'm like, what do you mean Doug's going to start? You know, he's been awful. And he said, uh, he said we're going to start the guy that we feel gives us the best chance to win. I'm like – Huh? So anyway, I go to sit down and write my story, and I said, okay. And it's the only time I think my writing ever got personal with a player. And my lead said something like, um, Mike Riley says he wants to start the quarterback who gives him the best chance to win, which begs one question. Why is he starting Flutie? And then I just went off on Flutie from there. So the next day of practice, I'll never forget, North Turner comes walking up to me, and he goes, you got balls. (laughs) And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, that that story, you got balls. And I'm like, okay. So I'm out with my wife. My phone rings. Mm. It's Flutie. Mm. Um, Hey, you have a minute to talk? I said, no. And I said, I gave you a chance to talk. Came to you man to man. You didn't want to talk. I said, I got nothing to say to you. So I hang up the phone. They go to, I think they went to Philly Mm -hmm. then. They lost at Philly. If Mm -hmm. you remember in that game, LaDainian had a big fumble. Um, Brian Dawkins returned it for a touchdown, I believe. So Doug didn't play well in that game either. So the next day that there's media availability, I guess um, Doug had talked to the Orange County Register, and then it said something to the effect of, why am I being blamed for this? I'm not the one who fumbled the ball, whatever, whatever. So I get a copy of it back in the old days. I Xerox it, and I put a yellow highlighter on it, and I walked up to the cafeteria where we're not allowed to go in. I see Doug, and I 
hold up the article, highlight it, and said, I want to talk to you about this. And he gives me this coy smile and just shakes his head no and walks away. So I wrote another story, just ripping his ass again about, you know, throwing his teammates under the bus. So I remember LaDainian was pretty hot. I told LaDainian, I said, don't say anything. I said, just leave it to me. And I, I said, I got this guy. And so at the end of the year, long story short, we get to the end of the year. And he, I can't tell all of this because some of this is, is <laughs> yeah. personal. But, you know, he approached me in the locker room at the end and he's doing the whole, you know, oh, I thought your writing got personal at the end. And, and then I just, right there, we finally had it out face to face. I told him exactly what I thought of him, um, what he was about, and how he's the biggest phony I ever covered. And needless to say, we haven't spoken since then. Um, and I haven't lost any sleep, and I'm sure he hasn't lost any sleep. When you, uh, it, there's, there's one thing. That's oh, I forgot to tell you. This is the best part of the story. <laughs> Let me hear. Let me no, hear. this is the best part of the story. So they're playing the Raiders, actually. Yeah. It's on a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. So all the guys come out. They're coming out of the locker room, and, like, one by one, they're saying to me, you got to call me. You got to call me. Ooh. I'm like, I got to call you. I'm right here. I'm like, no, you got to call me. So like I call him, I'm like, what's up? You won't believe what happened before the game. I said, what happened? They said, Flutie just went off on you. They, <laughs> said, they said, we literally are in the huddle, in the locker room, 10 minutes before we go to take the field. And he's talking about, we got to come together. This just that fucking trotter trying to divide us. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and he, you know... And so he's going off on me. Little does he realize these are all my guys, so they're calling yeah. and telling me. And then I'll never forget it because then Junior told me, Rodney told me, Marcellus told me, all I said, um, yeah, Doug, Doug came to us and he doesn't want us to talk to you anymore. And I'm like, for a lesser guy who hadn't been on the beat as long, that could have been a real problem, starting quarterback, going around telling them to freeze out the media. And Junior told me, he said, I told him. Um, sorry, Doug, you got your ass kicked on that one. You just got to take the L. And then Rodney told me, he said, I told him, um, he's the most honest guy I know. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm going to keep talking to him. And Marcellus and Doug, remember, boys from Buffalo. Oh, yeah. And Marcellus is following Junior and Rodney's lead, so yeah. he ain't going for it. And um, so it, it, was, it was such a weird dynamic to have the starting quarterback of an NFL team out on an island versus – a media member but it also tells you what they thought of him um because they knew everything i had said was true so that was probably in my career the like i said the only time i think my writing ever got personal and um not that i'm proud of it but um we all have one of those and that one was mine even this uh real quick if he was this is always the thing though that's fascinating to me. That happens a lot, Jim, in sports, where writers are deeply impacted by a player, and it carries over. Doug Flutie will never be up for conversation for the Hall of Fame. But if he was... He's the only player whose wife ever called me. Really? really? I'm sitting in the office, and his wife calls and says, says, your writing is starting to affect my family. You know, my kids at school and whatnot. And I, I said to said to her, Mrs. Flutie, this isn't a conversation for you and 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 I to have. I yeah. Said, this is for you, your husband and I to have. 
well, he doesn't think he can talk to you and whatnot. And I said, no, I went to him to have the conversation. He didn't want to have it. I said, so it's not for you and I to have. I said, but let me ask you one thing before I let you go. I said, you're going to tell me this is impacting your family. I said, have you ever thought to think that your husband's words might have impacted my family? Mm-hmm. There's like this silence. I said, just give that some thought. Yeah. And that was it. But she's the only wife who ever called me about something I'd written about their husband negatively. You know, he's yeah. and he was a personality that was bigger than life. I mean, he's in like sure Tim Tebow was. status. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yes, he is. But he we is. saw it here. Oh, we, we saw it. The one thing I always give Doug Flutie credit for, and we saw him at the Super Bowl a few years ago, um, was the fact after one practice, he said, Antonio Gates is the real deal. He goes, there's something special about this. When he, when he was the first guy to come out about Antonio Gates, when nobody knew Antonio Gates was, I gave him credit for that. I said, here's a guy that's been around football for a long time and said, here's an undrafted basketball player that he thinks is a stud. If he was a Hall of Fame player, if he was on the ballot, could you put that behind him to vote yes, for him? Because, absolutely. Because baseball, absolutely. they can't. You see it, baseball guys, they can't. No, I, I couldn't stand Warren Sapp. Warren will tell you that. But I, <laughs> yeah. but I voted for him. Yeah. Um, look, when you're in that room, I take that seriously, what the what the guidelines are to us. And at least when I first got on the committee, although the, it's changing now, unfortunately, in my opinion, but I was told you were to vote strictly on a player's impact between the white lines not all this other stuff and that's what i hold myself to the standard so i never i never let it be about did i like a guy mm-hmm. or not um i i separate or set aside all of that it's just about do i think he was one of the greatest to ever play i'll Period. give you i'll give you two ways to do this and then uh i'll let you i'm done i got one one quick question about hall of fame though um jim guys on the beat charger team i'll let you go one offense one defense today no just in your time in san diego covering that team and they don't even have to be a marquee name just your two guys one offense one defense where you go man these were the guys that i just i just dug it who were your guys i'll see that's uh I said that to you earlier about cake or ice cream. I can't answer that because truly um, this is what was so remarkable to me. As bad as those teams were, and there was one year where it was 1-15, the locker room was always great. Yeah. the play, Whether it was Junior, Rodney, Terrell Fletcher, um, Ryan Fred McCrary. McNeil, Fred McCrary. <laughs> right? Um, all of them. They yeah. were all great. I ran into Fred not too long ago who's doing really, really well um, – in his post-football life. He's actually an official in the SEC, too. Really? Yeah. But um, um, all of those guys were tremendous. You know, they never they never took it out on me. Very yeah. rarely, I should say. You know, and, and you get it when you're really bad sometimes. Um, but it was always a great locker room. Yeah. So Terrell Fletcher's another great yeah. they were all They were all pros. Yeah. You know? And, um, and many of the coaches – were the oh, same man. way so I, Wayne Nunley yeah I, I'm telling you man it, it's people would be surprised as bad as those teams were uh like when they were one and 15 oh it was great those guys we were, were always that great team. yeah, yeah they love were Mike great. Riley love that coach Aaron you know? Taylor was yes. phenomenal yeah. you know um so I can't I can't answer that they were all how was Rivers great yeah right really good to cover um now I was only around him for a couple of years but uh, he he's what you see, yeah. Like on television, everything. That's who he is. 
You know, he loves the game. He's excitable. He's a country boy. Um, yeah. And he loves to compete. I mean, he, in practice, I know last year they had to, Anthony Lynn had to back him off a little bit because he's so competitive that when they're in practice, you know, you have those young guys and he would talk shit to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never curse, but he would let them know, you know, we just kicked your ass, basically. And, and you got the pro bowl quarterback who's giving it to this yeah. young rookie or whoever and it can play with their confidence and they had to have a conversation with him like philip you gotta you gotta tone <laughs> it down a little bit you know i remember saying to him would you rather throw five interceptions to jason verrett or one to weddle and he said i'll take five with verrett all the time <laughs> <laughs> i got i got i got two for you because yeah. you brought up rivers you guys brought up rivers we we talk about this all the time rivers if his career ended today, Hall of Famer, Gates Hall of Famer. Um, Philip, I think, would be an interesting discussion from this standpoint. His regular season numbers are outstanding. His postseason numbers, opposite end of the scale. Yeah, so with Dan Fouts, though. I understand. But you have to remember, Dan played on different played era. in a different era and in an offense that was unlike any other at that time. And... You had the Air Coriel and all of that. So I'm not here to argue that if I had been voting that I would have voted Dan Fouts based on that. If we're, if we're saying that postseason numbers, and not necessarily just wins, but performance. Yeah. Can you put your team on your back? You know, Dan uh, or um, uh, Marino didn't win a Super Bowl, um, but his greatness was his greatness. Yeah. With Phillip, I think when you look at the postseason numbers – it's going to be tough. Ooh, so he needs, and, and it's something, it's funny you mentioned this because I was thinking about it tonight as I was watching um, the Cowboys game that it's a conversation I want to have with Phillip at some point if they do get to the playoffs about, and I, I know what his answer will be, but, you know, do you feel that sense of urgency not just because you want to win, but because when you start talking about legacies, You've got to perform in the playoffs, you know. Um, so, having said that, Philip is an I don't know. Antonio is a definite yes, unless the voters decide to be sanctimonious and say he was suspended for four games for PED. And that's going to be fascinating to me to see. Because if you don't hold it against him, how can you hold it against other players? Like Rodney, like Rodney Harrison. Like Rodney Harrison. And I've said it before mm -hmm. and I've said it again. Put Rodney's numbers up against Johnny oh Dawkins. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Yeah. If I show them to you, you would take Rodney's numbers over Johnny Dawkins. And Rodney has, what, at least two, maybe yeah. three Super Bowls, yeah. too. So, and, and he was better as a one, Charger, One, two, played I think, in three, yeah. right? Then, then, oh, wait, uh, playing in San Diego yeah, one, Brian, too. Yeah, Brian. Um, uh, Johnny Dawkins, the basketball player. Brian is what you were trying to say. Oh, I know it's yes. late. Because yeah. right. I, I know people will write us tomorrow and go, hey, you guys fuck that up. Um, yeah. All right, last question for both of you guys. Who's the one Charger player you thought was going to be a stud but wasn't? Oh, I love that. Oh, that's easy. You go ahead. No, I'll let you answer first because I have to think about it. I saw plenty uh, of busts in uh, my 20 years. It. Go ahead. Um, so one year they drafted a wide receiver named Trevor Gaylor. That's who I was going to pick, Trevor <laughs> Gaylor. Right? I was going to say Trevor Gaylor. <laughs> Son of a bitch. They I gave will, him 19. Give him Lance Allworth the number. Oh I will never God. forget this. And all I heard from the guys I respected, from Junior, from Rodney. Yeah. 
this dude is a player. I mean, yeah. he's making leaping <laughs> grabs all over the field, no TAs and mini everything else. And then they put the pads yeah. on. Yeah. And he's disappeared. And they, they realize he's a guy that didn't like contact. Yeah. So I bitch. mean, if you had a short, uh, an all, yeah. all pro team in shorts, he was Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. But once the pads went on, Jimmy Oliver was that guy. Jimmy too. Oliver was your guy. Jimmy, no, I didn't. Oh. No, I didn't think Jimmy Oliver was going to be a star. I just remember Jimmy Oliver was that guy. Another guy like Gaylor. That's because I listened to Devaney on everything. <laughs> Devaney sold me on every schlub that came through here. Gosh, Trevor Gaylor is a great call. Me, it, would, it probably would have been one of the guys defensively, and and I'm just. Uh, I'm I'm going through right now yeah. in my head. I'm trying to think of the different guys that came through, and you think about it. Um, you know what? Maybe too. Um, maybe maybe Matthews a little bit. Maybe maybe Ryan. No, no, not on that level. What about Freddie Jones? He went to a Pro Bowl. Yeah, no, but see, that's funny. You guys, Trevor Gaylor was easily mine. That's really funny. I guess maybe just because we've seen so much bad football since then <laughs> that, like, like I feel like, didn't you feel like early on, and again, this is going way too late. We'll make this really quick. Didn't you feel like early on you knew there was a red flag on Leaf? Oh, everyone knew, but it was, it was the talent that you saw in college. And, you know, remember, everyone forgets the circumstances of that. They were desperate the year before. Mm-hmm. They had either tied or set an NFL record for fewest touchdown passes in a season. I can't yeah. remember. I think they had 11 total yeah. for the season. Um, and so you've got Kevin Gilbride going into year oh, two, yeah. and there's no way in hell he's going to go into the season again with Craig Wheelahan as a starter. <laughs> yeah. um, and there were only two quarterbacks that they thought in that draft. People thought they were both franchise guys. I mean, the GMs around the league were split on which one to take, number one. People want to rewrite history now and act like it was a no-brainer. Yeah, There were a lot of GMs that thought Ryan Leaf was the guy to take it, number one. And um, so I can't I, – I always get a kick out of people holding that against Bobby if you don't know the circumstances. Terrible. And if you don't understand that half of the league felt the same mm. way. Yeah. And Bobby wanted Peyton, but he didn't have – the first picks. So yeah, it was, was unavailable. So maybe my guy would be David Boston, even though he came yeah. as a free agent. David mm. Boston might be my guy. Yeah, because I I, I really felt like that was going to be a guy that was going to be incredible, and really another guy. I mean, honestly, that uh, if I had to look at a guy right now that I thought was going to be a star here, Dave, you and I were on the air when Drew Brees came here. When Drew Brees, when you felt like LT and Drew Brees, Dave and I were doing the draft show that night, and when you were watching Drew fall down and you felt like no way is Drew going to fall to them at the top of the second round, and more importantly, just knowing the Chargers, even if he did, they're going to screw up the pick. Somehow yeah. they're going to screw it up. And that, to me, I felt like was really that combination where you felt like, yeah, that was the guy I thought probably, and, and again, it's not just looking back at who he's become, but maybe uh, from a free agent, I'd say Boston, and really a guy I thought was going to be a star here, well, I would probably say Drew. I, I would love to have seen how it would have played out if Drew had not gotten hurt. Yeah. Because the one thing I know, or two things I know as facts, um, Marty Schottenheimer likes veteran quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. And if Drew had continued to win, um, he would have fought to keep Drew. 
but Philip was AJ's guy. The other thing I know for a fact is if they had kept Drew, Philip was going to ask to be traded mm-hmm. because he was not going to sit the bench a third year. So what happened in that game? The story's always been that that what we were told was that AJ wanted Rivers to play in that game to see what he had and to see if he could trade him. And Schottenheimer went against that, played Drew, and Drew ends up getting hurt. I don't think I don't think AJ ever intended to trade Philip. Um, but I think what it was, too, Marty wanted to get to 200 wins. Mm. So while wins weren't important to some folks, wins were very important to him. And that's one of the reasons he was able to force his way out of here when he did get fired. He was more emboldened because he had 200 victories. Mm. If he had been at 199, he would have done what Dean asked and not pressed the issue of hiring his brother as defensive coordinator. Kurt. Yeah. Yeah, but – he had his 200 victories. He knew he wasn't going to get a multi-year extension. So he said, to hell with it. I don't, I don't need this. Would you ever guess the city would hate LT at the level it feels like they hate him today? You know, that's the interesting thing. I, I hear that, but I'm not – I don't listen to talk radio, so yeah. I, I, don't, I don't hear that. Um, and I'm not out and about where people are saying that to me, but I've heard it from a few people that they feel – that you know he sort of took the money and 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 changed um but i don't hear it like you guys do so yeah i don't know how strong that really is i don't know we uh we were lucky enough just because of where we were at the time we did the first interview with him yeah we dealt with him a lot yeah i enjoyed it i've said here if i made my living in the nfl and the NFL gives me an opportunity to continue making a living in the NFL. I didn't have anything to do with what happened down here. I'm going to keep working in the NFL. I'm not going to work at the Glidden Paint store. Right. And if you want to hate me for that, well, then go ahead and hate me. And you know what? If I'm getting paid by a guy, then I'm going to say this seems great. It's what I, it's, you know, right now we own the podcast. If people say, hey, I like the pod. I'm glad. But when I worked for Clear Channel or 1090, I said they were great because they were, they, I said the Chargers were great. It made sense. Look, the reality is someone's going to hate you for something. Yeah. So you're never going to please everyone. They should have drafted Deuce McAllister. He would have been loyal to San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> or Michael Vick. Uh, Jim, you're the best. Absolutely. Congrats you on everything, my friend. Thank you, my brother. How long did that go? That was uh, two hours and 13 minutes. Would you have guessed that, Jim? No. and, and um, Not a note in front of us. <laughs> But it's just conversation. It's just conversation. Thank you very best. much. Uh, it's the best. Tell your wife we appreciate it. Uh, Take care of that to. pup. Uh, I'm, I'm, and tell her to lighten up on the dishwasher. <laughs> uh, we'll, no. All right. Uh, seriously, cause seriously, our house, we, you know, it, it came with a dishwasher. I think in 18 years in the house, it's been used three times. <laughs> three times? What are That's you talking it? about? Yeah, we don't yeah. use the dishwasher. Are we seeing you at Cali Comfort on the 15th of September for Triple G? Uh, I'm hoping so. Canelo, too? Although I can say I'm not really excited about the fight. I think the second fight will be better. You think I so? Hope. Will you go? Uh, will you be there in October to watch Khabib and Connor? That's the plan. But you know me. I don't know my schedule that far out. But I sure. de- that's one I got to see. Uh, one, wherever I'm at, I got to see that one because that, that, that one's personal. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, fight club lives on. And uh, we miss our pal CS very much. You will see Jim. When are you back on NFL Network? You know your schedule this week? No. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Do you like that? I'm used to it. it yeah. You know, it, it, you have, you know, you want to be as topical as you can. Sure. So the only way you can know what's most topical is by waiting until 
you know, after game results on, you know, a Sunday night and Monday morning kind of having an idea of where you want to go so or what you want to do. Um, only thing I've done, only thing in the can right now is, is uh, I know I, I got a piece with Keenan. Hmm. I think it's going to run week two. And we're talking about doing a social justice piece this coming week for sometime in September. So I'll probably start on that. Um, and really, that's about it. Kirk, this Kirk Cousins missing piece for my Vikes. Mm, you get the hell out so. of here. Oh, you got a Super Bowl prediction so. before we let you go? I hadn't thought about it really. Um, man, that's so hard because so much of it comes down to health at the end of the year. Um, I really, I, I do. I like the Saints. I like the Falcons. Um, you know, the Patriots are always there. They just are. Um, Garoppolo going to be great? I think so. And I think it's not just him. I think it's – see, people people like to call players bust mm -hmm. or whatever and not consider the circumstances around them. And I don't just even mean talent around them, but also coaching. And I think that, that Kyle Shanahan's mind and Jimmy's mind work well together, and Jimmy is able to execute some of the things, many of the things that Kyle likes – I think it's going to be a special relationship. So, um, so I'll give me two teams out of each conference. I'll say the Saints and the Falcons, and the other conference, the Patriots are always there. So you have to say the Patriots, and then the other one I would say is um, Pittsburgh. You know, I always do that, and they there's just something about them. I don't are the know Chargers in that mix? I I think they're in that mix. Rams Chargers Super Bowl. <laughs> I know people say that. I don't. I don't know. I think the Rams are going to take a step back. Um, I think offensively they'll be really good, but but if they don't get Donald signed, I think they're going to have some issues. Um, but I think the Chargers are really good. Wow, they're really. I mean, they are really good. And you know, you look at them defensively, particularly with two edge rushers. If Joey Bosa, if his foot gets right, yeah, there aren't many teams that have that. Um, I like I like them a lot actually. I know people down here don't want to hear it, but they're they're good. Um, this will be my final thing. I've said that seventeen you said that times. About seventeen, <laughs> I yeah. think it was eighteen. Were you shocked that they hired Anthony Lynn? Mm, shocked? I, I would not use the word shocked. Surprised, probably. But the one thing when you talk to people who have interviewed Anthony in the past and know him, and now that I've gotten to know him fairly well. He's a very authentic guy. Mm -hmm. He's a very smart guy. Um, I saw player. you on Insiders hype him when you said I was watching that day when he had done the two games with Buffalo. Yeah. And you felt like he was going to leave, and you felt like he was a quality NFL head yeah, coach. Yeah, he is. He, and, yeah. you know, after Mike McCoy, that was the key word that the Chargers were using for their next coach. They wanted someone who was, quote, unquote, authentic. Mm -hmm. And um, Anthony Lynn is definitely that. And the players respect him. And as a former player, he understands mm -hmm. how to relate to him. So I, I think he's one of the – and I've sat in on a couple of league meetings with him, like in New York where he was there. And you can tell he gets it and he asks the right questions and doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low. At least I've not seen it. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I like him a lot. He's the best. He started with the goals. 
And then he started with the Grossmont Union School District. <laughs> that's where I started covering El Cajon Valley. Oh, that's the Grossmont worst one. To the NFL Mahala, Network, you know. author of the Junior Sale book, which is still outstanding. And just tonight, right here at Barnes and Noble in Eastlake, it's is it still, still there. there? Still there on the shelf, wow. man. Love it. Beautiful. I have to go buy me a copy. I love that uh, <laughs> colored picture. Jim, always a pleasure. Thank so Thanks much. for hanging out. All You're right, the brother. greatest. I appreciate you guys having me. Appreciate it. That was awesome, man. Having, uh, man. having Jim here was great. We just said goodbye to Jim. We'll finish up the podcast. I got to ask you about what happened to you this weekend because you had a really cool moment, especially yeah. a cool dad moment. But before yeah. we get to that, I want to mention the guys over at Taylor Made Pools. Alan Taylor, he's the guy right there that gets everything going. 20 years in San Diego, tailor-made pools, that's the only way to go. New construction on commercial or residential. Also, full remodels on commercial and residential. Don't forget, Alan Taylor is your guy. Sent me a great picture today. Did you see that? Of what he did for us, of course. As you know, he's been a fantastic partner on this show, but also that he was huge with Amy as far as bidding on items on August 1st. And he sent a framed picture of Eric Weddle. I was going to send it to Eric, but I don't know if you already sent it. I figured you would, so I didn't bother him. And then Yogi Bear and other things that they've been on that were absolutely outstanding. But Alan Taylor, just a great guy. You want to be surrounded by great people doing great work for you. Alan Taylor with Taylor Made Pools. There's only one person to call. 619-449-4452. 619-449-4452. Yeah, our friend Corey Stewart donated the Babe Ruth picture. And Eric obviously sent the Game Worn jersey or yeah. uh, Game Cut jersey. And when I saw that today from Alan, it was just great. And I love that he shared it with us, and they look so cool. But I immediately sent that picture to both Corey and to Eric. Oh, that's great. And thanked them for what they did for the charity event. And Weddle responded immediately and said, awesome. He loved it. And uh, just so he knew it wasn't hanging out in my <laughs> trunk or, or doing whatever. And so, uh, look, man, TaylorMade Pools, yeah. They do amazing work, and they're going to – my sons now are obsessed with telling me – I was in La Jolla with my son today, and he kept telling me um, – my son Jack was saying that he's going to buy a very large house. He's going to stay in San Diego. But one of the concerns is, for my son who's 10, is that he's going to have a hard time getting rid of his mom, <laughs> getting rid of his brother – and getting rid of his brother's kids who are going to want to hang out all day in his infinity pool. Oh, that's too funny. And he, his other problem is that his mom's going to want to use his limo when he's out of town. But he, the biggest concern right now for my son Jack at age 10 is not learning math or meeting girls or anything else. It's how do I tell my mom, my brother Cade, and Cade's kids, get the hell out of here. I want to use the infinity pool. And he said to me, does Alan Taylor know how to do infinity pools? I said, don't you ever insult me again. <laughs> I said, you'll never have a better pool than that one from TaylorMade. He goes, that's great. He loves it. So, uh, Al, I need to get a couple of kid-sized TaylorMade pool shirts. But my son Jack right now, who, again, figures to max out on the curve at 5'9", is not worried about that because we just strolled downtown La Jolla today for about an hour, and he kept telling me about, look, you know, Probably gonna make about twenty million a year. Yeah, and he said, you know, the nice thing is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look out for you. And he said, uh, you can live in the backyard. I go, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> in the casita. And he goes, he goes, <laughs> yeah. He tells me, calm down. I'm not saying you're gonna live in a hammock or a tent. He said, I'll probably have a guest house. I said, well, what if you don't? 
that I am looking at a hammock or a tent. And he goes, well, I guess you are. But the most <laughs> important thing is the infinity pool, and he knows that when he gets drafted, his friends at TaylorMade Pools will build it. Absolutely. He's going to have to have that house, too, so I imagine oh, he's going to be calling he's already, Brian Curry. Yeah, he didn't mention IB. He didn't say, I'm going to have the coolest house in City Heights. Bullshit. He said, I'm going La Jolla. And I said, well, that's my friend Brian Curry's neighborhood. He said, I'm going to have the biggest house in San Diego. And I said, well, that's easy. That's, that's called a Tuesday for Brian Curry selling that house. The, no problem. Brian Curry is your guy to find that perfect house. I tell you, here's an area of town. I've been in San Diego since 1989, but I drove around. Rancho uh, Santa Fe? No. You like that area? It's pretty nice. But here you go. Friday, I drove around. You're going to laugh because you're going to say, everybody knows, idiot. You're the last one in the party. Yeah. And I drove around this area again today. I was in La Jolla also, but I went for lunch in Point Loma. Oh, yeah. And I went on Friday. I was driving around Point Loma. Some of the houses on Point Loma, I had no idea how nice Point Loma was. It is so hard to find a house that for sale. There are a few, and Brian Kerr is your guy if you're looking for the right neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Brian has connections to every neighborhood in San Diego. Um, Point Loma was great. Liberty Station was great. I enjoyed yeah. my time on Friday and Sunday, both in those areas. But Brian Curry, again, he's been selling real estate all over San Diego County for the last 20 years. He's won a ton of awards. Everyone you know sells real estate, but how many people make a living doing it? Brian Curry's been doing it for a long time. He's the best in the business. You name where you need to go, where you want to go. Also, if you're looking for a guy who uh, does property management, Brian Curry's your guy as well. Don't forget to call Brian Curry, 619-251-1588, 619-251-1588. I was uh, in Northwest PB, just south of Bird Rock today. And you, you and I were in the same area, man. Isn't that crazy? That's weird. It's funny. And and just driving through there and looking at some of those neighborhoods where you go, wow, this is really, really cool there. And you just find it. I don't know. I, I like that. And I, I find it, Dave, when I'm out with my sons, like yesterday, just driving through. We were, in, we were up in North County, and we ended up in Escondido in the village. Just areas, we like it. We just like finding areas we've never been in, right? And and we always say the same thing. We're like, wow, we've never been down this street. But there are people that drive this street every day. Yeah. And I go, not that we had any reason to be here, but today um, you go from old school village in Escondido, but today when we were in, like I said, Northwest PB, South Bird Rock, you go, God damn, man. People who live there, congrats, baby. You hit it. You hit it. That is good living over there. And wherever you want to go, whatever your budget is, BC will take care of you. Absolutely. San Diego Superior Fence, Daniel oh, Tyler, yeah. he's your guy. Again, he's been in business in 2005. All these guys have been in business for a long time because they're very good at what they do. 760-745-4846. That's Daniel's number. 760-745-486. The perfect fencing for you. Daniel's your guy. San Diego Superior Fence.com, San Diego Superior Fence.com. Free estimates that makes it very, very easy all over San Diego County. If you live up in the North County, you probably already know about Daniel Tyler and his company. They've been doing a great job for years. A plus rating with the BBB, fully licensed and insured. Don't forget to give San Diego Superior Fence Company a call. Yeah, love what he does. Uh, the pictures you've seen him on social media. And I think, too, one of the things that um, I have found is that the older you get, the more certain things that didn't matter all of a sudden do matter. And things like protecting your house, protecting your backyard, protecting your privacy, protecting your pets, right? Yep. But um, but just things like, hey, I want to be able to park my car in the driveway. I want to be able to uh, let my dog or my cat roam in the backyard a little bit. But I want to make sure they're safe and I want to make sure they're covered. 
just all those things. Or, hey, I don't want my nosy neighbor uh, looking over the wall. All of those are, are prime reasons why you give uh, Dan Tyler a call at, at San Diego Superior Fence. Absolutely. Tell me about your day because I saw it on social media. You and I hadn't spoken, but I saw it, and then I was like, this is a pretty cool dad moment. Yeah, it was great. Um, my my ex-wife at some point, as the court continues to drag <laughs> everything out, but she's a runner, and she's run a bunch of races, and she's enjoyed it. And I don't know what it was. 18 months ago, my son Cade kind of started running. Now, I have flat feet, 100% flat. Cade's feet are pretty close to being flat. But he liked running, but he he kind of came out of the gate a little too fast. Like uh, my wife was saying, their first day, he ran like eight miles. Wow. And he was doing that, and he kind of came out, and it, it kind of warmed down a little bit. He started getting some heel issues and, um, you know, finding shoes, doing everything else, and he'd been out of the game for a while. So... She looked, and they had determined that today, after being done for like a year, he um, he was going to join her, and they had a four-mile race that came right through La Jolla down into PB, ended right by Crystal Pier. And he said he was going to go for it. So I was with him yesterday. I hung out all day. And look, it's a, it's a four-mile. It's not like a, you know, it's a four-mile. Four mile. miles is a long way. It's I've never a, run four miles in my life. But it, it was a fun run. It's not like you're... Right. I mean, you're not going for the gold. So there was no pressure on him. But I said to him yesterday, I go, how you feeling? Because she had taken him down to Roadrunner and got him some shoes. And they kind of looked at his feet and got him rolling. But he goes, you know, I'm OK. I'm OK. I go, you got butterflies? He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it a little bit. I said, that's OK. That's that's good. Because he'd played a full basketball game yesterday. Yeah. And so uh, this morning, um. I'm staying in, in PB, so the race ended five minutes. So I told her, I said, uh, hey, call me. You know, uh, my other son, Jack, and I'll come down and meet you guys. Well, they were done in, like, no time. And so I went down, and I met him. Uh, I met him right at the, the Denny's right there on the corner by Crystal Pier. And we just go over and have breakfast. We're hanging out. We're bullshitting about the thing. And then... Um, we're walking back, and they have all the times posted in the window. And I look, and in his age group, he finished seventh. That's awesome. He finished seventh. That's incredible. And, uh, you know, he said to me, we're hanging out at, at breakfast, and he said to me, I go, I go, how was he? He goes, man, you know, he said there were a couple of times I, I just kind of slowed down because I had an upset stomach. And I said, well, you haven't been doing it. I said, it reminds you of football circuits, yeah. right? When you first get out there and they make you... Got that you... pain in your ribs. Yeah, and you just you just feel like you want to throw up the whole thing. And uh, But it was just, it was cool. And I was, I was thrilled for them um, as a mother and son to do it. And this was the funny thing. And like, did, wait, did, so did she run at the same time he was running? Yes, yeah, they ran together. Oh, cool. They ran together, and it was it was really cool. And so we just went to breakfast, and and we all hung out the whole thing. And um, he said to her, which she got a big kick out of. He said to her very sweetly, he said, um, "Don't get upset, but I want to hang out with Dad." Oh. And so she was dying, you know. I she, thought he was going to say, don't get upset, but a 10-year-old had a better time than you. <laughs> no, they, uh, um, but she said, I want to hang out with Dad. And she's like, yeah, of course. So I, I just, 
Like there's there's a million things going on, but again, I can't emphasize enough. She and I get along great. We had, we got a big kick out of that, and so I just hung with him all day. And like his brother, we went to this park, and his brother's running around, and uh, and so I'm just I'm just reading a book. I'm just chilling under a shade tree, and he just comes over, Dave, and he just lays down on my back. And if you are a a father. Where your son does that, and I'm looking at Laura Kane, my yeah. friend Laura Kane, posting that her son Charlie is going away to college in wow. 19 days. I'm looking at our friend Kathleen Bade, whose son Jackson just went away to college, and she sent off a care package today from San Diego. And I'm watching all of these parents that are doing it and, and going through it. And uh, and he just, man, it's like today when he did something so cool, and I was so proud of him i just was so i'm always proud yeah. of him every parent is but i knew he, he got it through and I, he goes hey um he was think i can finish top three i go yeah okay you haven't run in 15 months man and uh i showed him what i posted on instagram he got a kick out of that because even at 10 i don't know why maybe he's just fucked up but <laughs> This is always kind of a guy who likes his privacy. I'm like, oh, f- shut up, right? <laughs> fuck. Us magazines out at the door. Calm the, <laughs> calm the fuck down. But, uh, but he liked the picture with his medal, and he liked being that, and we, and we just hung out. And I just, you know, here's, he did something the other day that was really, really cool. And, uh, and I'll share this story, and I, I hope she doesn't get upset. So I don't know any reason why she would. But, um... Thursday, I had been over there. I'd been over there, and I, I visited with them, and and um, my wife and I had like a 10-minute conversation I was, as I was getting ready to leave, and we just laughing and joking about different stuff. We, you know, and whatever. And I get home, and my phone rings loud at like 10 o'clock, and it's, I had started to fall asleep. And it was my son, Cade. And he said, I'm, I said, hey, what's going on? And he said, uh, mom's asleep in the bathroom. The door's locked and I can't get her to wake up. And I go, what? And he repeated what was going on. And look, man, he's 10. His parents, who he loves, are going through a divorce. He's got a twin brother when you're 10 that's a fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> He's got a lot on his plate. And I said to him when I moved out, I said, look, you have to be the guy. You're the guy because I'm not here. You have to be the guy, which is a lot to put on his plate too. Um, But we were just talking and we were going through the whole thing and she wasn't responding and, right? And the door's locked in the bathroom. And he was being incredibly brave. And I said to him, are you scared? And he said, I'm okay. And I said, okay, well, something's going on. And he said, well, um, he said, Jack said, he said, I don't think Jack understands that this is going on. I think Jack thinks this is kind of funny. And he said, I I don't think it's funny. And I said, okay, I'm with you. And he said, then there was a part where Jack said, well, we'll just call 911. And Cade said, no, we're, I'm going to call Dad. And when you hear that, Dave, you just go, holy fuck. 
I'm dad. Yeah. I'm this guy's dad, right? So we chatted, we chatted, and I said, you okay? And he goes, now it's like 10, 15. I've been talking to him for a while. And I said, can your mom talk and to me on the phone? And no, she doesn't want to talk. So I said, do you want me to come out? And he goes, yeah. And I said, okay, I'm on my way. So I get out there. And Dave, I don't know what I'm going into. Well, what I went into was I get out there and I go to the bathroom where she is. And I go, hey. And she's like, hey. And I'm like, you good? She goes, oh, my God. She goes, I had pasta for lunch. She goes, I'm just sick. I've been throwing up. Oh, no. And she goes, I had cooked it a few days ago. I said, okay. Well, it. <laughs> so she was fine. She just had a touch of food poisoning. She gets up very early in the morning. And so now it's 10 o'clock. Well, when you go to bed at 8, 830, she just fell asleep. She just fell asleep. She didn't yeah. mean to Didn't pull a Whitney Houston. No, yeah. God, no, no. But. So then what I find out, so she's fine. Everything's fine. This was no desperate cry Thank for God. help. Yeah, she just had bad pasta. Yeah. She was very um, sheepish and thankful that I came out. I get her cold water, the whole thing. But this was the great thing that made the story hysterical. So my sons are concerned about their mom sound asleep in the bathroom, and they don't know what's happened, and they're trying to figure out what to do. So as any good Dotson boy would do, they go and grab their hockey stick and they start jabbing her under the door. Mom! Dad! <laughs> so... So I said to her, did you feel that? She's like, yeah, I did. But she's like, I'm sick. I'm trying not to throw up. My head's spinning. And I keep getting harpooned in the leg. <laughs> So uh, everybody's fine. But I Good. just put a thing on social media that, you know, I was just I was really proud of him, of how he handled it. He yeah. did the right thing. He did a great thing. Poor thing. Just it had bad pasta. And, you know, wow. we've, we've all been there. But um, but, you know, be like if you got sick at two in the morning and yeah. somebody's outside the door. I said, well, how loud do you say? Mom, look, shit, yeah, bang on the door. No, screw that. We're going to go get the hockey oh, stick and just start jabbing her. Hey, wake up. Bang, bang. So, uh, yes, he finished the race, and it's been a good week. And just, Dave, like I said, when they just, when they kind of crawl up on you, yeah. and they're still there, and it's been a huge concern for me being out of that house. I was afraid I wouldn't matter anymore. I'm not saying that, looking for any kind of, uh, it's not like the, hey, draw attention to myself. It was a sincere feeling yeah. that what had been a big circle was about to become two, uh, one medium-sized circle for three people and one incredibly small circle on the outside, which was going to be me. Um, the three of them have done an outstanding job. Well, Vita and Kate have. Jack's done a horseshit job, but he's okay. <laughs> um of reminding me that I'm part of the big circle and he did it for me today and he did it for me the other night and it's uh I just uh he, he keeps me balanced man Good. he really does he keeps me balanced and I share it with him and I've told him a lot that he's my best friend and I couldn't be more proud of him fantastic that's a good deal uh, real quick I'll uh we'll, we'll wrap it up but I gotta tell you I, I did something today that I've always wanted to do and it's funny I've talked about this for a long time with my older son Josh 
and Scott Yaffe's been on me for about five mm. years. Scott Yaffe worked yeah, for the San Diego Chargers for a number of time. If you follow Scott Yaffe on social media, you'd see only pictures of him on his paddleboard mm -hmm. constantly. And he always says to me, Dave, I have two of them. He goes, you got to come out one time to La Jolla with me. We'll get up on this paddleboard. It's the most relaxing thing I do. And it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, you have seen so, these things, right? These guys yeah. stand on it, and you're sitting there rowing around. Very to the, zen. To the point where, for a guy who's never tried it before, I was going to go buy a paddle board, which is about oh, 900 shit. bucks, and I was going to buy a truck to stick it in because I said, I need something to carry my paddle board. So my son says to me, hey, let's go paddle boarding Sunday morning. We've never done it before. Let's go. So we go down to La Jolla, same area you're in. Okay. It's my wife. It's Josh, myself. My, my younger son says, fuck that. I'm not doing that. And we go and we rent these paddle boards. Three paddle boards, 90 bucks, two hours. Okay. Okay. Now, how cold is the water? What are you wearing out there? Just a bathing suit. And they make you wear a goddamn life jacket, even though I know it's swim. It's just one of those things. That you but all them. three of you? All three of us. Okay. okay. So we go on out there, and, and there are tons of people out there kayaking, Not which cold? is great. Water no, water? the water's been great. I've been out to the beach three of the last four weeks. It's been nice. outstanding. So before it was in Carlsbad this time, in the, way, the, the water is so clear. Literally, Jeff, you can see fish. You yeah. just look down, and you see fish swimming around you. So um, jump on this paddle board. They're having a tougher time than I am. Get on this thing, and I'm like, hey, I'm pretty good. I got past the waves all of a sudden. Goddamn Laird Hamilton. <laughs> 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 dude it, it, no joke man i'm on this thing for i don't know three minutes dude and i'm getting so fucking seasick you can't believe it shut up dude, really swear to god and and i'm like man i'm a puss and i'm just, i don't know what happened to my equilibrium like i can't do magic mountain anymore i yeah. can't do disneyland i used to love roller coasters and i'm on this thing and i'm like oh, i gotta get down on my knees all right i gotta i gotta lay down and then I'm just sitting there looking at the water, and I'm seeing all these fish underneath me. Then I'm like, I'm going to start throwing up right here in the ocean. Shut up. Dude, I jumped off that thing and just brought it in, and I was like, fuck it. I don't think I was on that thing for eight minutes, and I just said, there goes 90 bucks. Oh, shit. And now, what about your wife and They uh, stayed Josh? out maybe another 20 minutes longer than me. They, and Did they like it or no? No, they all of us hated it. Hated every minute of it. And, <laughs> and I, as I said to Josh, I go, thank God I didn't buy one. Thank God oh, I didn't buy shit, a, a fucking right? truck or buy a goddamn guy, buy, buy one of those things for 900 bucks. But I remember saying, uh, to, I said to him, because I think he's a little bummed out that I jumped off it so fast. I go, dude, that's what you call, it was a life experience. We did it. Say we mm -hmm. did it, and we're never going to go back. But... Dude, I, I couldn't wait to get off that fucking thing. It was a nightmare. I thought it was going to be the most fun thing ever. Yaffe's yeah. been inviting me out for five years, and I'm telling you, I didn't have the. I, I'm the only guy that gets seasick on a fucking paddleboard. I'm telling you, <laughs> I, I was done. I was done. I, that was my. Uh, that's my day. But we we turned it in, and then we jumped back in the water for about three more hours. Had a great time. Had lunch at Liberty Station. Oh, it's great it was day. a great day. And then came back and did this obviously with Jim Trotter, which I absolutely loved every second of that. Uh, real quick, Liberty Station, October the 27th is the AFSP walk. We will be down there. We'll be a part of it. I'll get together with Che Hernandez this week, and we will determine all the details for you to let you know. We'd love you to be a part of it. Man, my heart goes out to my sister Kim, my brother-in-law Carrie, that they just lost a very close friend in the art oh, wow. community in San Diego gentleman hung himself earlier in the week and i just uh man it impacts so many people uh we will be there uh your money went to afsp and we thank you for all of it that all of you who did it and uh it's incredibly nice couple of other just quick things house cleaning to think about uh you mentioned scott yaffe scott yaffe worked for the chargers for a long time and he is a guy that was incredibly good to me because 
Yaffe and I are one of our first encounters <laughs> that we laughed about forever was he was a young guy. I was a young guy. I had Hank Bauer driving me fucking nuts to get stars on his show every night. And Yaffe called me and tried to help hype me on Wayne Boyer, who is a free agent <laughs> kicker from UNLV. And I've, I'm not fucking putting Wayne Boyer on the show. And Yaffe and I would laugh for years. That's funny as hell. I'd, uh, like, like two years ago when the Chargers left, I found a picture of what Wayne Boyer was doing. <laughs> and I sent it to Yaffe. I go, fuck, man, our boy's still here kicking. But Yaffe, this is, Dave, why I, I say to my sons all the time, if, you, if you're good to people, people will be good back yeah. to you. And Yaffe is one of those guys because I said to him, we're going to rebuild the Little League field. Let me, and let me take you how my brain's working and, and we'll walk it through. So we're going to rebuild the Little League field. We've got to get a couple of ducks in a row. We're going to do that and then we're going to go and we're going to get this field together. And it's, my vision is what I want to do is the outfield and the dirt and the fence and the press box. Maybe we can reload the snack bar. It would be really, really cool. And what I've said to everybody over the last couple of weeks, but this is, I think, the first time I've shared it on the podcast. I've shared it with Dave and a couple others. What I want all of us kind of to do at the end, which I think would be kind of fun, is for us to get a chance to play catch on the field, right? We can all play yeah. catch on the field. Bring your kids out. I, I, what I will tell whichever field we're going is, look, there may be a fucking paint smudge, right? We may get some paint on the metal bleachers. Suck it. Who cares? <laughs> It's going to be an incredibly fun day, I think, for all of us to, to be at. And then what I want is, and what I'm going to figure out a way to get done, is we're going to have one of those groups that come out to Oceanside or, or go out and show the movies. We're going to show Field of Dreams at the end of the night. You can call it whatever, cheesy, who gives a fuck? I think for all of us that spend the day down there, um, I met a really cool lady at Del Mar. I think her name is Stacy. She owns the Trails Restaurant. Alan Cson, Sean Walchev are big buddies with her. And I said, uh, I kind of told her what my plan was and, and the Trails may be, um, be a part of it, all of it. But Yaffe said to me, look, I'm going to help you find a group that's going to come out and show Field of Dreams when we rebuild the Little League field. And then he said to me, he goes, you know what else we're going to do, Jeff? He goes, I'm going to write press releases for you. Cool. Because he said, I love what you're doing. And he said, let me help. And I go, fuck yeah. How great. Um, we were we had people that said, Paul Rudy said, hey, let me come out and shoot the event on August 1st. I felt that that was self-promotion for me and Dave. And I really didn't think that's what that night was about. So I turned that down. But when we rebuild this Little League field, it's going to be about all of you. It's going to be all of you that come out and make this city better through one little league field and it will be very fun and as i just think of all of us that are coming out and we're we're putting a new field in and we're we're like i said dan tyler is going to help with the fences and barkley and curry and all our boys are going to help out um i was like well what do we do at the end i thought we have a fucking barbecue and we'll show field of dreams now i don't know how to do that i just want to do it and yaffe said i'm gonna fucking help you we're going to do it. And that's just, man. Uh, Fantastic. It's the message I teach my kids every day. Be good to people and people will be good back to you. So don't forget, October 27th will be the walk. Um, the field is coming. I want you all to be a part of it. When we know more details, I'll let you know. We just got to get a couple of things in line. 
before we start searching for that field and we'll get it all tracked down and off we go. And tomorrow, uh, we will be here. We'll do a podcast. Dave, are you going to talk about your uh, car buying experience? <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about it. Will you? Will you yeah. talk about it? Yeah, I'll talk about my car buying experience. All right, believe me, this is a story that you're going to want to hear tomorrow night. <laughs> I am telling you, trust me. Uh, we'll see if Dave... T- I love this story. This to yeah. me is one of the most fascinating deals in the history of Diablo. <laughs> I don't think that's hyperbole. I'll leave you on that. I think uh, if you listened all the way through, thank you. Yeah. Tomorrow night will be one of the all-time great Diablo stories, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, we'll see you tomorrow.